What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Thanks. Okay, because you sound great. I don't know about that. No, no. I mean, you're ready for, for radio. I mean, have you have you ever tried to listen to your own voice and then just been like, God, I sound like such shit. Yeah. Like, who is that douchebag? <laughs> <laughs> who is that guy? Is that me talking? <laughs> Jeez, and I'm sober. That's horrible. Yeah. It's... I mean, and that's, you know, I say that all the time because I, you know, I, I'm always sober. So everyone's always like, who is this weird sober guy? <laughs> Why is, what's going on here? Right on. So, Dom Martin, we're sitting at your house in your backyard. Uh, we did a tour of your amazing and wonderful collection of, you know, all of the different species of animals. Wow. Thank you. That you've, you know, gotten to, that you've had the opportunity to to take. And uh pretty amazing collection. You know, for a farm boy from Madeira, yeah. You know, I... I like to think that I give hope to other people, regular guys yeah. like me, because that's that's really who I try to represent in the organization, in the state chapter, at national. When I'm standing on the stage telling jokes, or when I'm standing in the booth talking to a guy, I get it. I mean, I I'm a regular guy. I've never really been about money. Mm-hmm. I made that choice. I was one of the smart kids. I know that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. <laughs> I had had a lot of options. This is what I I chose this life. I chose, uh, you know, quality over over the money. But, you know, I've made it work and Mm -hmm. I've generated opportunity through relationships with people and maintaining those relationships, cultivating relationships, doing some horse trading when you had to. Uh, and, And I've got to do way more than I ever thought. I mean, like just the Africa thing alone. I, I never thought that was a real thing. I never, and it wasn't for a. It was it, a really fun romantic it, thought. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. And and I can remember a time as a teenager, you know, uh, talking to my dad. Uh, he was a a very serious, dedicated mule deer elk guy. That mm-hmm. was it, mule deer elk, and he would work all year to do this one big out-of-state trip, you know, mostly Colorado, but some other states, Oregon, Montana, uh, to hunt mule deer and elk. And I, and I asked him one time about, have you ever wanted to go somewhere, you know, a little more exotic and, you know, like Africa? And I just kind of threw it out there kind of flippantly. And he kind of took it very seriously, and he said, I, I just, I've never... I've never discovered anything that I really wanted to hunt there. You know, to him, and again, like, as a regular guy and a farm boy, you, th- you think that these things are outside of your scope of opportunity. And so I, I just don't think he, he thought it was an option or took it seriously. Because I can guarantee you, with his passion for elk, if he hunted kudu one time, he would just be on <laughs> fire to to hunt kudu i mean and you see 
I've got more kudu than There's one. Plenty in there. <laughs> I, what's, what is your thing with kudu? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I you know, it, it, it's a it's a romantic experience, and uh, and I I was very thankful that I got to do it, and it was one of those things that the opportunity just came about. Friend of a friend, uh, who's also in the guide industry, and y- you know he calls me on the phone. He says, "You'll never believe it. My dad." took a couple of South Africans fishing after the sportsman show and he decided he wants to go to Africa. Do you want to go? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I was in a real happy place. <laughs> uh, this is back during the dot-com bubble. So I was day trading stocks, making way too much money for a young person. Uh, and it was coming too easy. And so I spent it as fast as it came. So I learned a real valuable lesson about managing your wants and your needs and this kind of easy money. But I, uh, to be honest, I blew it all on hunting. <laughs> so it, it, in the end, uh, it was worth it because I achieved some life goals that I just thought were beyond me. But, uh, but yeah, and killed some really spectacular animals and and just made new friends all across the world and got involved in a business venture over there and partnered in a safari outfit and you know now that's a feather in my cap i can tell guys like oh yeah i used to be part owner of a safari outfit Mm -hmm. well something that you brought up that i really appreciate because for me it's extremely relatable is you know you were talking about your dad and your dad was primarily a, a mule deer and an elk hunter, and you know Colorado was your his bread and butter of kind of where he wanted to hunt and his ideal situation. And for me, it's almost identical, you know, to my relationship with my father, um, in the sense of except his state was Montana, where he would go on out of state hunts and hunt, you know, the Sierras and and out of state Montana, and that was just kind of. He planned it every year. Every other year is going to be, a you know, a 10 or a 16-day hunt. He was self-employed, you know. He's a general contractor. So, for him, that was that was his big trip. That was what he wanted to do. And I've gone to him just like you had gone to your dad and asked him, was there ever any other hunting that you wanted to do outside of it? And uh, one of my big, really, really big driving forces to where I am today has been listening to my dad talk about stories in the 80s, you know, when my grandmother and grandfather and my uncles and other family friends would all go hunting and my dad would have to stay home and and not be a part of that trip because he had to work, Mm -hmm. you know, and he had to pay the bills and he had to do all this this other stuff. And, uh, you know, for me, that really is just like, that's my, my opportunity of like, not that he regrets it, you know, because he's built an amazing life for my mom and and myself and my brothers and my sister and, you know, all the grandkids. We have 12 grandkids in the family as well. None of them are mine. None, <laughs> none of them are mine. But, uh, you know, it's so for me, that push to really go out there and, and see other opportunities and see other parts of, you know, not only Western hunting, but this planet. Um, it's just so enormous. It's, and I don't want to look back and say, 
well, I didn't go on all these hunts because I had so many bills and I had so much other stuff going on in life. You know, for me, I want to look back and be like, I've lived every hunt I've ever wanted to go on. I've achieved my dreams. I've achieved my goals. And, you know, I'd say that the difficulty in that is finding, you know, a person to settle down with and have a relationship with. Because when you're on the road eight months a year, how do you have a relationship with someone? <laughs> but that, that, is, that is a challenge, especially, um, especially in the, like my industry, the guide industry, outfitter industry. Um, boy, if you aren't a team on this deal, uh, you, you're inevitably doomed. I, I can remember even in high school, um, actually more so in college. In college, I sacrificed multiple girlfriends to hunting because I, I you'd, and I'd have this conversation to be try to be totally honest and say, look, we can do whatever you want most of the year, but this like July to November, I'm going to be gone every single weekend. Mm-hmm. You, need, you need to really embrace this, what's happening, because deer season is a timed event. It starts in July for, for us here in California. Yeah. You know, we start bow hunting in July, and we've got opportunity to hunt into October, sometimes into November. Of course, then duck season kicks in. Right. So, look, there's <laughs> there's something to do, yeah. you know, to between this July, December. So it's like, I'm going to give you January to June. We do whatever you want at, on your schedule, uh, but understand that once hunting season comes, that's going to be priority. And I, I lost relationships over that, you know, because you're just. It's a lot of sacrifice yeah. that goes into it. And it's, it's a lot of outside sacrifice that I think a lot of people aren't. Maybe they are a little bit aware of, but they aren't really, you know, in their face aware of. As to someone like yourself where, you know, you're talking about direct experience with it, you know. Right. And I think for. For a lot of us that are really kind of members of the community or the family, you know, as I like to say, it's it's not a hobby. It's not a sport. You live it. You breathe it. You think about it every single day, year round. It's it's a culture. It's a lifestyle. It's a belief system. We've got our own rules. We've got our own social mores. We've got our own secret handshake. We're we are a, a community. We are like the ultimate hyper minority in. Uh, in in America, and, and worse yet, we're a hyper minority that y- you know people go out and preach hatred and death to on the internet mm-hmm. willy nilly and get away with it, and they wish death on you and your kids, and they're I'm going to find you and burn your house down, and you know it, it's 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 really fascinating and a little sad, uh, but it, it's part of being an ambassador for our lifestyle, which you've heard me talk about before. Uh, you you have a disproportionate responsibility to be a good ambassador for the culture and to educate people. And whether you're waiting for a flight, sitting in an uh, airport bar or waiting area or whatever, and you strike up a conversation with somebody, uh, it, it's, it really helps if you can explain the North American conservation model, why you hunt, what's important to, uh, to it about you, and, uh, and most importantly, that you eat what you kill because... Uh, a lot of people ask me about this. This came up recently about the the, uh, the food pictures on my Instagram or whatever. And I'm like, look, I'm at a point where I'm still fascinated in a country where it is illegal to waste any form of game meat. I mean, it's punishable by law in every mm-hmm. single state. You can't waste game meat. 
that there's this misconception out there that we don't eat what we kill. <laughs> I'm just fla- and and not that we not not only eat what we kill, it's in some cases it's awesome. You know, mm-hmm. like doing the the flip flop that yeah. you're known for. You know, we yeah, did. I saw you guys doing that the other day. That was so much fun. For yeah, me to see, see that the the guys were so excited. They're like, <laughs> we're gonna do Andy's flip flop method. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's do it. Yeah, and, and what'd it, you think? It was oh, they did a great job. It mm-hmm. was awesome. Get, did you have it at the Mountain Academy that year, too? I did, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you did it both nights. You did it the pre-party, and then you did it the night. Yeah, then, uh, the, then the after-party night, yeah, too. Yeah. Pre-party and the after-party. Yeah. And now every single person that has met you will never part out a hindquarter again. Yeah. <laughs> there are deer hindquarters whole and intact in freezers across California. Which is actually crazy to me because people hit me up all the time like, hey – you know, do you have any advice? You know, uh, a couple of the guys from Mountain Project uh, down in Arizona. You know, people are showing up all over the place. One of my other buddies, you know, from Montana calls me and says, hey, I've got a freezer with nine hindquarters in it for you. Like, <laughs> you know, you can have them or, you know, cook them up here, whatever you want to do. And and I've got, you know, 12 or, or I think I've got 15 left right now in my own freezer. Yeah. You know, so it's. It's quite everyone. It's the uh, opportunities and adventures that are coming from people that would like me to cook that for them so they can learn how to do it firsthand has been uh, absolutely unfathomable. Well, and that speaks to the kind of nature of our community and the nature of the industry is you, you never know what that one funny little thing is going to be that is suddenly going to connect you to people mm-hmm. and connect those dots that's suddenly going to lead to an opportunity <laughs> to do something you had never <laughs> believed in. You know, Cooking a leg of a deer. Y- that's right. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, I went to Humboldt State University, not the most conservative school in California. And uh, I was the like one of three kids on the whole campus with a cowboy hat, and we all knew one. The Emerald Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right in the heart of the Emerald Triangle. <laughs> and uh, it, back when it was still illegal. And, uh, and yeah, I got my degree in, in theater and film. And just the simple ability of understanding uh, editing and then understanding videography capture necessary to edit a finished product and understanding that whole process you know backwards which for anything it's often uh very conducive to learn something backwards from the finished steps back to the starting steps because in doing so you learn the value of how important it is to do everything right for all the, the the first steps so in terms of creativity and filming and making a product uh, for the hunting consumption or the public consumption or YouTube or whatever content you're trying to create, understanding editing would do so much for your, for your video work in terms of I need to capture all the pieces of the puzzle so the editor is not cussing my ass out during the editing process. And just understanding that whole concept to finish product in video and film production that turned into op, uh, opportunity for me 
all over the world, mm -hmm. you know, marketing for our outfit and uh, for my friends in South Africa, for our outfit in South Africa, uh, going to other countries in Africa, uh, the stuff that I did, the, the opportunity to go to Asia was I knew how to run camera. And I had built a relationship with a hunter who I guided for Tule Elk, who enjoyed my company. I guided him in uh, Sonora, Mexico for mule deer, and then I guided him here in California for Tule Elk. And when he had an opportunity to go hunt Marco Polo sheep, he said, I want you to go and I want you to film and, and I want you to help me judge sheep and, you know, and just go along for the ride and, you know, basically, you know, laugh, tell jokes, uh, keep me entertained and out of trouble. And, uh, and, and that's how, that's that funny little aspect of what makes me unique that generated opportunity to travel all over the world, mm -hmm. you know, and, r and meet people online that, you meet somebody in a in a in a forum online uh, like bowsite.com i i've made a lot of really good friends from bowsite.com and 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 meet these people and have an opportunity suddenly you're filming a hunt for Jake Enson to finish his 29 you're filming a hunt for Tom Foss you you know it, it, those opportunities all came about because i had a skill set that was unique and and i was willing to travel and do whatever was necessary to go on these adventures which know? goes back to also that life that ultimate life sacrifice you know and s sacrificing time away from family from you know home and structure back at home to go out on these adventures and you know really partake and yeah and and there there's been a lot of times in my life where I've I've really struggled with what I do and there was there was a time not that long ago, uh, let's say 10 years, and um, I was very seriously looking at opportunities to get out of the guide industry and get a job that paid, you know, air quotes, paid. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad it didn't work out because I went through this kind of horrible situation uh, in Alaska uh, it was very painful. Change is painful. Period. You know. Always, man. You get you get in, you get into a rut. You get into a, a something that's comfortable and it works for you, and then suddenly you're you're forced to do a, a, just a huge dramatic life change. And for me, it it in the instance that I'm speaking to was transitioning from Southwest Alaska to moving over to Ultima Thule, and and that. That was really painful at the time, but it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me because, you know, leaving Southwest Alaska, moving over to work with the Claus family in Ultima Thule, uh, it, ch it changed my life, you know, and it suddenly it was like a whole new world, this drastic, the drastic difference between, you know, hunting sheep in the Alaska range and hunting sheep in the wrangles, you know, and more importantly, guiding sheep in the wrangles. And it, it really laid the groundwork for a lot of stepping stones towards success in terms of being financially viable and also uh, name recognition within the community. And suddenly, you know, uh, I won Guide of the Year in 2018. That really kind of changed my whole world for me and it provided me a tremendous opportunity to be able to reach out to people 
to uh, get opportunities to, to travel across the country and, and host other events, uh, other uh, wild sheep dinners, uh, and, and just meet people and communicate and just talk about everything that's great about what we do in our life and try to do good for wild sheep and try to do good for conservation. We really do have a disproportionate responsibility to take care of the resource. Mm -hmm. And the people, they, they, they truly embrace it. They really believe in it, especially Wild Sheep Foundation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very, very blessed. And then to look back, all of those choices and regrets about maybe struggling or financially or not being able to pay for this or go to this or uh, carrying a crap load of debt for a gross amount of time, you know, uh, hold trying it. to make it all work oh, and hold I mean, it together. Yeah. You're just, you're just trying to hold it together. I mean, I carried, when I produced Cub Driver Alaska, we filmed for 32 days in Alaska. And then I took the whole fall off to edit that project. And, and now I, I can barely watch it because it's just, if you're not a pilot, it's so hard to just sit down and watch Cub Driver Alaska. It, but I sold thousands of DVDs, but yet it still didn't cover the cost. I mean, I carried the debt for that project for eight years, which mm -hmm. goes back to this old kind of Hollywood cliche about <laughs> never make a movie with your own money. <laughs> find someone else's That's, money. Find a sponsor, never make a movie mm -hmm. with your own money. And guess what? When we made Cub Driver No Second Chances, we had a sponsor. It was way less painful. And we took all of the lessons that we learned in that first production to produce a product that was more watchable to non-pilots, to non-Alaska files, you know, people that weren't just totally in love with Alaska and Super Cubs. And, and it just had broader appeal. And, uh, and it, was, it was very popular. We sold in 50, 50 countries. 50-something countries, sold a lot of DVDs. It was awesome. You know, very proud of that one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll die. We'll we'll go down a Hollywood rabbit hole really quick. Because okay. you lived in Hollywood, right? Yeah. You were involved in the film industry. Um, first, what was it like being a cowboy kid from Madeira, getting a degree in theater and, what would you say the second? Theater part? and film. And theater and film. Well, you know, I've always been a performer and an actor and um, which you could tell definitely, you know, by your breakfast speech this year. <laughs> wild sheep. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I hope. And yeah, and we I just want to get a copy of that Matrix footage. <laughs> still trying to make a meme out of that. I I I can see what I can do. Um I would say, you know, when you're doing it, you know, my time at Humboldt was awesome. Um, I loved it. I loved the the people in the department were really good. Okay, they didn't agree with my politics. Of they, course not. They didn't quite understand where I was coming from. They didn't understand the whole cowboy hat thing. Um, you know, it, it, it. So there was there was some struggle there. But once you really got into the creative process and you started working with people, they were kind of like, okay, I get it. it is, he's legit. Okay. Mm -hmm. They could understand that. My senior project's a perfect example. My senior project at Humboldt State, to, to wrap up my, my theater degree, uh, I, did a, I did a show 
called the carp shooters and it was all about bow fishing but it, it was more about the relationships uh, between men and women and because i was going through a lot of rocky times i had just had a casualty relationship as a byproduct of my passion for hunting because i'd gone every weekend um and and i and i put this thing together and 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 it really kind of changed people's perspective about that look you can be you know you can be politically conservative you can be a redneck and you can still be creative and you can still be funny and so it that was a really kind Adam of a Sandler. Little, yeah, it could be a, uh, that was a big kind of landmark, uh, thing for people, uh, within the department because they suddenly took me a, a lot, a lot more serious. Um, but, but the Hollywood, making the transition to Hollywood was, it was a little rougher because I'm a small town kid. I went to a small town college you know, Humboldt at that time was like 16,000 students, which was like half the town, town of 30,000 <laughs> people. It's a lot bigger now. Um, and then suddenly I actually got my agent through the guide business because he was a fly fisherman that, that fished with us in Alaska. And it was kind of like, hey, what do you do when you're not guiding? And I'm like, well, you know, I got my degree in theater and film and I'm an actor and kind of in between projects. And I'm just taking a couple of seasons to do some guiding and spend some work in Alaska, have some adventures. Oh, and then I'll get a real job. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was like, hey, I'll tell you what, I'm an agent in uh, uh, Los Angeles. And why don't you come down and we'll give you a shot. And and I was like, okay, and I did. And we went down there and uh, moved to Los Angeles and was very scary for a small town kid to suddenly live in LA. In the what an enormous hole of a place. Oh God, you know. Um, <laughs> did you live in actual Hollywood or were you in West Hollywood? Or I lived in Hollywood later. When I started, I lived in West LA. I lived on like the south boundary of Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. uh, like on Pico. Like, let's say, for for lack of a better description, like Pico and Avenue of the Stars, east mm -hmm. of there. Uh, Pico and Ambassador, I think, is where we, where, where, I, where we started out. And lived there for a while. Spent way too much on rent. But we, you know, we were in a security facility and building and blah, blah, blah. It was, you know, L.A. was scary. <laughs> After a few years, it was kind of like, this is not that big a deal. Yeah. You know, <laughs> L.A. is not that big a deal. So I kind of got over it. It's kind of um, like the hunting community where it's really big from the outside. And once you're inside of it, it's actually really, really, really small. That's right. Your yeah. your perspective has changed uh, for you, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we got, after a little more confidence, uh, you know, they kept jacking up the rent. We moved to Beverly Hills, literally moved to 90210, right across from the Beverly Hills post office, south of the Beverly Hills Tennis Club on Maple and West 3rd. And then... The next apartment. Now we were like, now we just need to save money. Then I moved to Hollywood. And and people, <laughs> people have a, a, a misconception of what it's like to actually live in Hollywood or around Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, it is not glitz and glamour. No, uh, uh <laughs> no, it's not ghetto. But I mean, it's borderline. Uh, it's like though. a notch above ghetto. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like ghetto. Borderline. It's ghetto. It's ghetto. It was back then, at least. Ghetto adjacent. When I was there, you know, we'll call it ghetto adjacent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lived Sycamore in Hollywood, so I mean, literally, you know. In it. I was right, <laughs> in, right across from the knitting factory, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, kind of good concert spot. Um, you could, and I walked a lot of places, like in, in kind of total look. Uh, uh, 100% uh, 
polarity of the what's the song? Nobody walks in L.A. The mm-hmm. '80s song. Mm-hmm. I walked, I walked everywhere, and uh, and and I was recognizable because I was probably the only person that wore a cowboy hat in <laughs> Hollywood. They, I know they probably just assumed I was gay. You know, they're just like, look at this cowboy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know. I had a lot of adventures down there. But I got to say, once my comfort level was there with Los Angeles, uh, it really wasn't that big a deal. And I can honestly tell people, I have seen more violence and drugs and human filth and garbage in San Francisco in a single weekend than all the time that I was in L.A. L.A. was so much more laid back and benign. Yeah. You know, San Francisco is can be super scary and it san francisco's horrible it's uh, disgusting uh, these days oh no it's it's the w- one of the worst cities on earth yeah you know? i don't understand how it's uh run itself into the ground the way i mean i understand how it has but oh yeah i'm yeah. not gonna get into that yeah fucking no. can of worms and i've got i've got friends that live there and i just have i just don't even want to go to see them because one there's no place to park a long wheelbase truck there not only yeah. that but i mean <laughs> if you park on the street you're Cars getting broken into almost, you know, 80% of the time. Yeah. No, it's, it's, that's a bad deal, you know, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I enjoyed my time in Hollywood. It mm-hmm. was a great learning experience. It helped to mature me. It helped me to be tolerant of people who a little pretty bit more much open-minded, open-minded 100%. people who disagree, like, you know, vehemently disagree with what I do and my whole lifestyle. And so to work in that industry where you, you everybody is di- diametrically politically opposed to what you stand for, yeah, you 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 kind of find a way to one, like I said, educate people truly about what you do, and then two, find some happy medium where you can get the work done. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. When when I lived down there, the one of the fellows that I was living with for about a year was on a terrorist watch list. Um, as an animal rights activist. So coming from a hunting family and a hardcore hunting background and living in Hollywood with someone who's on a terrorist watch list for animal rights and, you know, protecting animals is... That's L.A. Yeah. That's L.A. No, it's like anywhere. uh, There was a learning curve down there to kind of how to figure out how to get along. It really helped if you knew where you were going. It was a uh, 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 kind of a um, geographical oddity in the sense that no matter where you were going, it took an hour to drive. Didn't matter how far you were going, you were going to be in the rig for an hour. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you pull up to an audition in a truck and park right in front of the casting studio. They're watching you through the window like, who's this guy in the truck? Is is somebody moving? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, I had a lot, a lot of fun and... Uh, but when you're working, it's awesome. But the, the problem is when you're starting out, if you don't know anybody and you're not connected, you're not born into it, you're not Jewish, you're just some farm kid from the valley, reasonably good looking. Even my agent told me, he's like, you'll never be leading man, Don. I'm sorry. You're, you're hero's best friend. Okay. I'm like, well, I'll be hero's best friend if they pay me to be hero's best friend. I'm not a fr- There are all kinds of. I always said my career, if I, my career emulated somebody like a Bill Pullman, who was also told, you're not going to be a leading man, you're hero's best friend. Bill Pullman, he's been in everything. Nobody kind of really knows who he is, but they recognize him. Like, weren't you the president in Independence Day? 
Yes, yes, I was. Thank you. Um, my name is Bill, by the way. I was also in Sleepless in Seattle, and I've, I've done like a hundred movies. Yeah. Nobody knows my name, but I'm world famous. But I am that face. I'm that guy. You I'm that guy that face. did that thing, you know, yeah. which is a running joke with another buddy of mine, because after he killed the um, gold medal California Bighorn, he's like, hey, finally, we're those guys that did that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which in the abstract is absolutely hilarious, and for people who think too literally, they're, they're never going to get that joke. <laughs> right. Right. How funny. So now we'll we'll go back into hunting and, and get back more on topic. Um, coming out of L.A., coming out of the, the film industry, and, and really kind of just digging in and, and wanting to get more involved in uh, – and hunting, and you had been hunting in Alaska already at this time. Um, what was that growth like for you? You know, you said you went on the Marco Polo hunt. Um, were you actually were fortunate enough you you'd uh, killed a ibex, a mid Asian ibex, um, if I remember correctly on that hunt? Um, what was that like for you? You know, and and how did you kind of go from mule deer and elk? You know, and we talked a little bit about Africa, um, but mule deer and elk into, you know, more intensive big game hunting, getting into sheep hunting. I, I, I will, I'll say that for me, Alaska really was my gateway drug. Um, it really changed my perspective on what my goals were, what I was capable of. Um, there was a lot of things when I first started up there, there were a lot of like really kind of dynamic life events. Okay. So like I lost my dad to cancer in the year I started. So literally my father passes away. We have a celebration of life. I literally get on an airplane and go to Alaska for five months and no opportunity to kind of grieve or I, I just go up there and. I just try to put it behind me, focus on the work, focus on learning as much as possible, focus on getting my boat hours so I can apply for my U.S. Coast Guard uh, operator's license so I can eventually guide. And, and then just to go through that whole, like, really intense experience, five months of just seven days a week grinding it out. And this is back when the Mulchatna herd was king. And, I mean, we were knocking down you know, between 15 and 20 caribou a week. And I, it was just a nonstop grind, you know. Uh, once we made that transition from the fishing clients to the hunting clients, it was just nonstop. And you, it just never ended. You were packing meat, putting meat on the meat pole, taking meat pole, taking meat off the meat pole, putting it in boxes, putting it in the freezer, putting it on airplanes. It never ended. But it was, it was, it was very intense. But it was a lot of fun, and we were all very passionate about it. Now, how did you end up? Coming into contact with the outfitter that employed you. So for anybody that might be young and wanting to maybe go that route in their life. So again, this, this all comes back to uh, relationships where my uh, everything in my life that I've truly benefited from has been a byproduct of a relationship with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so one of my best friends from college uh, was a chef. And uh, it's Walter Chuck. He used to be... Uh, president of Oregon Finaz and he was a chef and he got recruited to go to Alaska to cook for a fish camp they were so 
uh, impressed with what he did uh, on the lower Nushagak at the King Salmon Camp that the outfitter said, you know what? I got a hunting camp about 200 miles upriver. You want to cook for another eight, ten weeks? And, uh, and he said, sure. So he comes back from Alaska. It's my senior year, so I was just wrapping up college. He comes back from Alaska with all these stories about knocking down 30, 40-pound king salmon on the Nushagak <laughs> River. He killed a couple caribou, tagged along on some moose hunts. He, he was just like, and he said, they, they're looking for guides. They need fish guides. And I said, ah, you know, I really don't want to be a fish guide. He says, look, this is a great way to get your foot in the door. And so I said, gotta okay, start somewhere. you got to start somewhere. So what I did was I wrote a letter to the outfitter, and I basically introduced myself, said, I'm Donald C. Martin, and I'm just graduating from college and don't really have anything on my plate right now, but I've hunted and fished my whole life and filled him in on some details. But uh, the, the, the summation of, of that letter was pretty much, look, if you give me an opportunity, I will not disappoint you. And, you know, and I walked into work the next day, and I was working construction at the time to pay my way through school. And I told my boss, I said, look, I just wrote a letter to an outfitter in Alaska. If I get an opportunity to go to Alaska and work, just so you know, because I'd been there like six years, you know, I said, I'm going to go to Alaska and work. I said, I appreciate the opportunity you've given me here. Um, you know, work in construction, learning a trade, which <laughs> I had my somewhat questionable marketability of my degree. Luckily, I by the time I graduated, I was a journeyman plumber and, you know, I could sweat the prettiest copper on earth, man. <laughs> I can sweat that copper. Now, nobody does that, right? Yeah. It's all plastic. So I, I just told him, I said, look, and he kind of laughed. He's like, if you get a chance to work in Alaska, <laughs> you better go. And and that was it. I just never really heard anything. And about five months went by, and then the outfitter calls me up out of the blue and says, you know, yeah, I got your letter, and I read through it. and was pretty impressed. I let my wife read it. And he just started a conversation with me, and he says, yeah, Walt, Walter Chuck gave you a good uh, – he vouched for you and gave you a good recommendation. And w we talked on the phone for like two hours, and he basically said, look, I've – I've bought a few airplane tickets in my time, and kids come up here and they party on my plane ticket and then go home. So here's the deal. If you pay your way up, I'll put you to work, I'll pay you, and I'll pay your way home. I said, fair enough. And that's how it started. I got my foot in the door, and I was the Chichaco uh, Greenhorn, and uh, I did every crap job in that camp, you know, <laughs> digging latrines and dealing pack boxing meat and uh, raking trails and fixing doing cabin repairs and construction and of course anything plumbing related fell under the umbrella of you know my job description uh packing moose out of swamps caribou out of swamps it just because they want to break you the they want to they want to see what you're made of so they're gonna you know it's like the service they're gonna break you down and then they're gonna build you back up you know it's the same thing you know, the, going in the Marines or the military, they're going to try to break you down, see what you're capable of, and then they're going to build you back up. And so after a few months of pretty well abusing me, um, they were like, okay, all right, he's kind of legit. 
let's start investing some time in him. And they started teaching me how to do this and do that. And, uh, you know, on a, I'll tell you the right off jump street, the most valuable lesson I ever learned was, uh, how to process the animals using the gutless method and then how to do the rib roll. Two of the super most critical aspects of what we do is, is, is dealing with animals once they're on the ground in later years that became the most valuable thing that I taught people was how to process the animal right where it fell to give them the confidence to go and hunt anywhere mm-hmm. uh, for anything because all animals, we're all built the same. You know, all mammals are essentially built the same. And it doesn't matter if it's a moose or if it's a spring buck, you can part it out the same way. And, and that really ultimately became one of the most valuable things that that I would teach people because it get, it gives them confidence. And, 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 you know, when I started, I was guiding for the wrong reason. You know, I, it really was a selfish endeavor. I wanted those adventures. I wanted a chance to hunt caribou. I wanted a chance to kill a moose. And this was the only way I was going to do it because I couldn't afford it, mm-hmm. you know? So when I started, It really was, it was all about me. And when my time in Hollywood ended, I had uh, an epiphany where I dramatically changed the way I dealt with my clients. And this was probably about seven years into my guiding where I kind of turned a corner because we had a couple very volatile years in the camp where the guide staff, we're all young guys. It's, the, it's just a freaking testosterone soup. You got it, just a bunch of young guys. They're all muscled out. They're all in great shape. Everybody's going hard. Everybody wants to kill the biggest moose or the biggest brown bear. Or the, everybody wants to be the king of the guides for that year, whatever the case may be. You, you, I turned a corner there where I said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to not make this about me and make it about my guy, the guy that's funding this whole party, you know, the guy that's picking up the tab for this hunt. Mm -hmm. It's his adventure. It's his hunt. I'm going to do everything I can to, one, make it all about him, two, make him a better hunter, whether it's being able to identify plant species or bird species uh, or understand ecology or interactions with wildlife or what's going on. but I wanted to send every single client home being better than when they showed up. I wanted it to be a transformative experience for my people. When I turned that corner, it, it totally changed my satisfaction level in myself as a person, my career as a guide. Um, and, and also, th- that was suddenly the experience that laid the foundation for a friendship between clients. I was no longer just sending home clients. Everybody that left was like, that's my new best friend. And I, I even joke about that. I'm, you know, I'm one of these guys, I'm a guide. I'm a best friend for hire. I'm going to be your best friend for the next 10 to 14 days. And, and I would send these guys home and I'm like, there's, I just made a new best friend. And these guys would come back and hunt other species. They'd come to Mexico and hunt. They'd come to California and want to shoot a tule elk. Suddenly, I would have guys that would come and hunt with me five or six or seven times. And subsequently, the, the, the real benefit for me uh, was everybody invited me to come hunt. 
no, I mean, it just got to a point where it was like, don't invite me because I will show up. And I suddenly there were these <laughs> there were these opportunities where guys would come and they'd have a great hunt. They'd kill a moose or a brown bear or whatever. They were like, oh, yeah, you should come to Michigan or you should come to Mississippi or come out to Kansas. And suddenly I'm whitetail hunting all across North America, California farm boy who struggled trying to kill blacktails on public land. I think I've only killed five or six. To feet, man. And, oh, my God. That's, there's nothing more satisfying than a public land blacktail. And suddenly, I'm, I'm hunting whitetails all over the country. You know, like every year I've got a whitetail hunt somewhere. And now I have killed so many more whitetails <laughs> than I have blacktails or mule deer or any of the native deer to my home state. Yeah. You know, Um and I'll be honest, I enjoyed hunting whitetail more than I thought I would. I really, I really enjoyed the chess game of figuring out what's going on, looking at the sign, trails, scrapes, rubs, glassing up deer morning and night, and then making a commitment to a tree. This is the tree. I'm going to kill the deer out of this tree. And then when you kill the deer out of that tree, it's just, it's a huge victory, you know. You're, but then you realize you're all by yourself. You're like, yeah, oh, okay, high five. Time to get to work. That's right. Yeah. That's funny, you know, because, I, I mean, for me, when I'm out hunting, wherever it is that I'm hunting, when I'm solo hunting and by myself and I kill something, I'll take a couple pictures, but I'm not big on, on taking a ton of pictures for my own animals. Mm -hmm. Other people's animals absolutely love to photograph every single piece of it that I can. For my own animals, it's just like once that animal hits the dirt, man, it's time to get up to it, you know, ground quarter it, get it in my backpack, and start getting it off the mountain and hope I can do everything that day. Yeah. You know, so it's such a... When I'm with other people, the experience is so much different than when I'm by myself. And it's exactly what you're saying. You jump up and down and look around and there's no one there. And then it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> now it's time to get to work. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the, uh, there, there's a real melancholy sense, you know, later after my first few whitetails, there was a real kind of sense of loss. Like, you know, yeah, I'm super excited because it's a successful hunt. You know, I got a, got a, got a deer, got a buck, whatever. But then you're like, oh, you know, now it's now it's over. You know, that's the rest of my deer season. Especially on day one. Yeah, ex <laughs> yeah you kill one like on the first or second day. You're like, oh, God, I drove all the way to Kansas, and now I'm going to drive all the way home, you know. Um, but, you know, got a great buck to show for it, so I guess it's okay. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a real mix of emotions. Um, I don't have that problem so much with other species. Anything that's a miserable hunt. You're just glad it's over, you know. And I always joke about, you know, guys will often shoot things in self-defense. They'll shoot them in self-defense so they can just get off the mountain. You know, that's the, that's the horrible thing about first-time desert bighorn hunters, and especially here in California, that th they like the idea of sheep hunting more than the actual sheep hunting. So once they draw the permit, literally, they'll climb the mountain one time, and then the next day it's like any ram is going to get shot. You know, mm -hmm. they're just, they just want out. They were like, whoa, this is, this is not the adventure I thought it was going to be. Is this is way more difficult. This is way more than I signed on for. Um, and you find that out in a hurry. You know, uh, you know, O'Connor's got a great quote about realizing whether you're going to be a sheep hunter or not. And it, 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 that could be some of the, 
truest words ever written about our lifestyle and our culture because there are people literally we've had guys in alaska that will land the super cub and they'll get out and they'll look around and they'll look right at you and say fuck you (laughs) (laughs) it's this just became a grizzly bear hunt because i am not going up there you know uh the Alaska Range. We had a spot in the Alaska Range that was notorious for that because it's like, it's a, it's a just magnificent place. One of the most magnificent places I've ever been. But if you land on the river in the very bottom, it's literally like a mile of sheer face rock on both sides. <laughs> it is, it, it's not just daunting. It it could be one of the most intimidating canyons to just get out of because there's only so many places you can get out of the river bottom without a technical climb and mm-hmm. uh and and we've literally had guys just no game over if this this is no longer a sheep hunt i'll shoot a bear i'll shoot a caribou i'll shoot anything but just t- take me away from here get me out of this hell. <laughs> i want exactly you know i did not sign on for this mm-hmm. so what was your deciding factor for becoming a sheep hunter you know i had guided for a long time and when i tested it and got my registered guide license um, I approached my outfitter and I said, I would really like to try hunting for sheep and guiding for sheep. And he kind of thought long and hard about it, and hemmed and hawed, because it was a 100-mile Super Cub flight to the nearest Rams. And I, I basically approached him and I said, look, you book the hunters, I'll take them. Um, I've done a lot of homework. I got a couple of spots picked out. Um, I'd really like this opportunity to try this. And so we did a probationary season. We did a, a couple of test hunts. I think we sold the sheep hunts for like 8500 bucks. It was a total train wreck. Total train wreck. Um, neither one of the guys got a ram. Uh, one of the guys was not physically capable enough to ever get out of the bottom. The other guy had booked another hunt on top of the sheep hunt. So literally, he, he basically showed up and said, okay, I thought I, I've only got five days. So, you know, I need to get this done in five days because I'm, I'm going to British Columbia. And so he shot himself in the foot. And he brought his wife, but she was a good climber. They climbed every day. They did really good. They were physically capable. Um, but it, it still, it was, it was too much hunt for him. Because um, it was a particularly miserable portion Two of the, species of the Alaska in five range. Days, that's kind of yeah. Seems like he did kill a black order. bear. He did kill a black bear because we we were just covered up in bears. So he didn't go home empty-handed, but he did not get a sheep. Um, but their failure um, upset me so much. I was like, somebody's got to kill a sheep here. And so I had my I had the outfitter. I said. I, I'll buy a tag, you sign the contract, and me and the other guide, the other guy will go with me because I'm non-resident. doesn't matter. Not, your guide license does not trump non-residency. So even as a, a registered non-resident guide, I still need to be guided for sheep, goat, and gra- brown bear, which is the silliest thing I've ever heard. There's no other pro- professional license in Alaska that's that way. Mm-hmm. You can become a, a licensed contractor in Alaska, but you don't necessarily have to contract another contractor to build a house for you. It, it, it's just, it's silly, but that's neither here nor there. I needed a guide. I had a guide. 
and and I said, just send out a new contract and a sheep tag, and we'll stay. Because somebody's got to kill a sheep. Otherwise, this is a total loss. Mm-hmm. We burned a gross amount of aviation fuel flying 100 miles, you know, uh, one, you know, 200 mile round trip for two guys that ended up going home empty. And so we stayed. It, it, it's long, complicated story. One of the, but one of the most pivotal hunts of my life. Guy got injured. It was it was a horrible, messed up deal. Um, but I killed a ram. We got it done, and it was miserable. It was horrible, and. It, it, and I can remember times during that hunt where I wanted to quit, and and literally I'm just about to lay down on the ground and give up, and there's a sheep, and and I said, okay, I can push on, I can do this, and pushed on, and next morning rolled out of the tent. There's a sheep right next to the tent, not sublegal, but you know, about five hours later, I killed the ram that I have here hanging in the house, and. Mm-hmm. That was a real defining moment for me when you come up against those obstacles. And this, for everyone, this is what really is the true value of sheep hunting for everyone, is coming up against those obstacles and those barriers of uh, self-doubt and and being able to just keep pushing through it and push through the pain and, and push through all of the, the cold and the wet and the discomfort and the small tent and sleeping on rocks or whatever, and and just being so committed uh to that to that goal and to that end and to that aim and and achieving it and then getting the animal off the mountain safely and i burned up a pair of boots i ended up packing the sheep off the mountain in a pair of uh salcony cross trainer tennis shoes which trust me if you're in sheep country in a pair of tennis shoes you're going to take your time and go really careful because you can't afford to have a rock roll over your foot and but I got the sheep off the mountain and it was an epic hunt and I really appreciate my guide Troy hanging in there basically enduring a gross amount of pain for a long time because I needed him to stay that extra day to make it legal you know yeah I said I got it you got one day to kill a sheep super cubs coming in the morning we're leaving and it was like okay gotta gotta kill a ram gotta do something gotta make it do, happen gotta make it happen and willing to go to any length and and that. And that, that for me was the kind of defining experience to where I said, okay, I really want to do more sheep hunting and more sheep guiding. And I want to be able to share this kind of experience with other people. And, and that's what it's turned into. And the next, very next year, we sold two more sheep hunts for 8,500 apiece. We changed the way that we operated in the region. We did a lot more scouting and... Sean Wood came up and guided one of the hunts for me, and and we were out of there in three days. Two rams, two black bears, you know, four animals, two happy hunters. We were out of there. Yeah. How cool is that? And it, it, it was a drama- It was literally the complete opposite of our first experience. We knew we needed more physically capable clients who could also shoot to 350, 400 yards, and we found those guys, and they were able to get the job done. So, I always find it really interesting. When I encounter somebody, client, person, whatever, and it's like, okay, what's your effective range? And this might come across to some people terribly, you know, but for me, it's just the way that it is. When someone tells me their effective range is 100 yards and uh, they're really expecting, you know, 
a hundred or sub hundred yard shot, you know, and, and the reason being is that for me, for myself as a hunter, um, I like my base range to be set at 300 and I like to know everything that my rifle is going to do from 300 yards to 200 yards to 100 yards. Anything after that, you know, if, if I don't feel comfortable taking a longer shot than 300 yards, that's fine. You know, but, but for me, I really, it's so imperative and especially when you're hunting wide open country where maybe your shot is the only shot you're going to get is going to be 300, you know, and, and, and maybe that's even getting really close, you know, without, without being busted or spotted. Um, I don't know why I'm going on that tangent, but a hundred yards, sometimes that's extremely difficult. Oh, absolutely. To, to close to a hundred yards. Yeah, well, let's just be honest. The nature of the environment, in some cases, is so vertical, or you're going to end up shooting cross canyon, you know, because of the nature of the of, of the environment. You, it's just not reasonable. And that, to be perfectly honest, that's why I find myself turning away most bow hunters. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, look, we've got an area that's bow hunter friendly. The sheep are not always there. It's not like we can just take you willy-nilly anywhere within our concessions and drop you off and, and have an opportunity to get within archery range of a sheep. And that's tough, man. Archery yeah. range on a on a ram is, you know, and and I watched it this year with the California governor's tag, you know. Mm-hmm. Archery range with a ram is, that's extremely difficult, you know. And to, you know, we were with Kika, so to watch Jake be able to get within archery range on five desert sheep was just insane. You know what I mean? But yeah. that's like, you know, it, it, to to what you're talking about, getting inside that range is just insane to me. Yeah. And especially probably in, in a lot of the topography and country that you guys are hunting up there. Yeah. And you've got a couple of like massively contributing factors uh, for s- trying to be successful in an archery hunt is one is sheep density. How many opportunities do you really have? And two, the your you know, the team that you put together in terms of your guide staff and your outfitter, the knowledge of the terrain to be able to, let's be honest, get around and come over the top on the rams, okay? Just in in terms of just kind of talking general, basic, classic sheep strategy, getting around the sheep and rolling over the top on, to, on them. Uh, if you're trying to do that with a bow, y- your guide has really had to spend some time boots on the ground, understand that environment and that region, and then... Two, have sufficient rams that, okay, we blew this one. Let's let them settle down. We're going to go over here. We're going to drive 45 minutes, and we're going to sneak on this other ram. Mm-hmm. You know, you you got to have a appropriate animal density, and then you have to have that on-the-ground knowledge. A lot of times that when you're when you're hiring, putting together a, a team of professionals to, to, to make this kind of investment, you know, especially in the case of something like a governor's tag or some of these uh, hunts now that are 40, 50, 60, 70,000, um, it's like a lot of sheep hunts these it, days. It, unfortunately, 20 plus. M- most of them, yeah. 20 plus. That's, that's kind of where it's going. And, uh, you know, for us regular guys, it's you, you really get your fingers crossed every time you buy a raffle ticket, you mm-hmm. know, because that's kind of how you're going to get the foot in the door on, on a stone or a desert, you know, yeah. outside of a draw. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you've, that's what you're investing in. And, and so you've got to you got to have a real frank conversation with your guide and your outfitter before you invest that kind of money, you know. But it's true for any hunt, and it's all relative. Like, for me, spending five grand on a hunt, 
oh my god you know that's <laughs> yikes you know don't tell my wife yeah. you know so it, 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 it's all relative and it, it doesn't necessarily just apply to sheep if you're going to go halfway around the world to shoot some obscure goat species you, again those decisions when you're laying the foundation for a successful hunt critically important that you ask the right questions you have a real conversation and you have a good sense of the person and it's like i'm gonna spend 10 days in a really small tent with this guy am i comfortable with that is this are we gonna get along and you know it's a lot about personality and and uh you you've <laughs> you got to have a good sense of it going into if you don't feel good about it on uh, right off a of jump street you you shouldn't be booking a hunt mm -hmm. you know you, you gotta you gotta have confidence going in that this is the team I want to commit to, you know, and and I think for guys that are just starting out, that that's a, a tough commitment to make that first initial big expensive hunt, whatever it is. And, and for all of us, it's different, whether it's five grand or six grand or more. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter what the price is. It's just if it's going to be painful to you financially to invest in that opportunity, you better be 100% right off Jump Street. Like, mm -hmm. this is going to be a great, I feel good already about if spending If it's going to be painful, don't, uh, don't go let it be painful and then also not be willing to go that last 20, 30%. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other conversation about, you know, mental fortitude and mental preparedness uh, and having that willing, willingness to be uncomfortable for the duration for however long it takes that that you know a lot of people say you know well you know i'm i'm not a quitter or i i'm not going to give up but when the chips are down and things start to go south and it goes from a hunt into a real adventure which um i think jim shockey wrote an article one time about um i think he wrote one time Adventure is the point in the hunt when things really start to go wrong. <laughs> and, and that is so true. There's a lot of truth to that. There, though, you know, that's the adventure portion is, is the unknown because that's the, com that's the key component to adventure is unknown. And so when stuff starts to go south, then it's, that's where you're really going to find out things about yourself. And, and if I've ever said anything profound in my life, because I'm not necessarily known for profundity, the the one thing I've said for a long time is um, there's no greater opportunity for self-discovery than sheep hunting because you're going to find out things about yourself, things that you like, things that you don't like, things about yourself physically, and more so things about yourself mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and and so it truly is a transformative experience. It's a it's a, a discovery experience. I tell people sometimes it's a ritual experience because in, in terms of a, a ritual experience, you, you're a different person at the end than you were at the beginning because you have changed. It has changed you. Your perception of yourself and what you're capable of, you know, you're either going to be sadly disappointed or you're, you're going to go home, you're going to get dry, you're going to get warm, the pain's going to go away, and you're going to suddenly discover, I can really go and do these miserable hunts. And I think maybe I really want to try going on some of these really miserable hunts. And pretty soon you're talking to a guy in a show wanting to go to Azerbaijan, which is, you know, characteristically referred to as one of the most miserable hunts there is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's horrible, steep, vertical, gnarly country. Um, but you don't have to go all the way there. You can you could be just as uncomfortable in Alaska. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> right. So tell me about Ultimate Thule. Ultimate Thule, man, what an absolute um, gem. Um, Ultimate Thule is, it's a, it's a medieval cartography term. It describes a place beyond the edge of the known world. Uh, in nautical terms, it is, a, it is a place that cannot be reached by dead reckoning. So there's nothing that more accurately describes what the Claus family has built out there than Ultima Thule. Because it really is, it's a whole, that's their whole other world. They're a whole little uh, town unto this. We call it Thule Town. So they're a whole village unto themselves out there on the edge of the world. You know, the, the, the next thing is the Yukon border and then the Kluwani. Um, and we've got three consecutive concessions there that, uh, that, but nearly up to the Kluwani, there is a narrow little strip of hard park, national park, between us and the Kluwani. And we share those rams back and forth. Uh, world record genetics, the Swank Ram was, was taken there. Uh, it's a magical place. Um, and, but it's it's a miserable place and it's a dangerous place. Um, there's some injuries and some deaths. I mean, it's it, it's the real deal. It's not to be underestimated. I think the the moment you kind of take it for granted and disrespect it, uh, it's when it swallows it's, you whole. It's when it's going to kill you. Um, yeah, he'll gobble your ass up. Literally, you, know, you fall on a Mulan or something, you're gone. They won't even salvage you. You're just you're gone. Um, you're committed to the earth right there. Um, but it, it, it really is a great place. Um, there's just the sheep hunting there is it's it can be really magical, can be really frustrating. Uh, but it, it, it's going to test you. It's, it's going to be that's probably one of the most rugged parts of Alaska. I, you know, in terms of Wrangell St. Elias National Park, I joke all the time with people. That's the only good thing that ever came out of the Carter administration. Mm. OK, when they made that a park in the 70s. It, it really is a special place, and it is the biggest piece of protected ground on Earth. Between Wrangell St. Elias and the Kluwani, it is the biggest piece of protected ground on the planet. You know, Wrangell St. Elias is 13.2 million acres. Oh, wow. I mean, it's it's an epic piece of ground, and um, it's got the largest subarctic ice field in the world. It, it really is um, an unbelievable place. It, it's it's why that our ecotourism business, the recreational business, is is so popular. It's because people want to go there and they want to see it. And the best way to see it is in a super tub. And Ultimate Thule offers way more than just hunting. That's right. Our our hunting program is super small. I mean, it's we have this narrow little opportunity. Uh, we only take ten sheep hunters a year. Um, we, it's so the hunting program is actually a fraction of what the business is because we do skiing and mountain climbing, uh, air taxi services uh, w for people trying to access remote portions of the park. Uh, and then we have the air safaris, which is our recreational business, which makes up the bulk of what we do. Uh, that's generally starting in May and ending in September, uh, just introducing people to the park and getting them out on the glaciers, letting them walk around on the ice and kind of introducing them to that whole world and trekking and mountain climbing and seeing uh, grizzly bears and bison and doll sheep, mountain goats, uh, just more black bears than we care to. I try to get, I always try to get the guys to shoot the black bears. You know, we just have so many bears. It's very, very impressive. Um, 
but it's it truly is a an awesome place and the clauses have built an absolute magnificent facility the quality of the lodging and the level of service and the meals it it truly is unparalleled they've won awards you know worldwide major travel awards or one of the top ecotourist destinations on the planet how cool you is know that? and then in addition to that we have this little program over here on the side that a lot of times we kind of keep on the down low the hunting program mm-hmm. um but yeah we we've got a really good hunting program we uh we take a uh, a lot of great rams we maintain a pretty high average normally averaging right around 160 class rams um we're just we're just at a point now where you know between ourselves and the resident hunting pressure i'm just not sure we can grow a new world record ram in our concession um because of existing hunting pressure mm-hmm. and and then natural predation we've got we've got some serious wolf problems we've got a lot of wolves um in the in the chitna river valley and uh and they're just there's nobody out there dealing with them because it's so remote it's not cost effective for somebody to try to go, go out, out there, there and, and, trap. and trap them yeah, yeah. so uh, on the line yeah and uh and then of course or the further east you go you've got wolves that they just go into canada and then come back you know they're we're we're that close to the border you oh know? really we're only 35 40 miles from the yukon oh so, wow yeah we're very we butt right up to the kluani we're we are their uh <laughs> nearest neighbor so and then there's also bison up there that's right yeah Th- there's and there's not many places where you can actually do a free range uh legitimate bison hunt yeah and that is one of them this is the chitna river bison is one in my opinion one of the greatest bison hunts in North America. It's a real adventure hunt because it's frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just giant. They're just, they're huge animals. And I killed one here recently in Colorado. Um, but, you know, I, the bison, I... Was that a recognized by BNC? No. No. Because in Colorado, they're not considered game. They're considered livestock. Same as like for Nebraska. Or California. They're essentially privately owned animals. But they're free-ranging, at least in the area where I was. They're free-ranging bison, but they're privately owned. Uh, And mostly because they just can't keep them fenced in. They're going to go wherever they want, especially (laughs) these bulls. Well, they're jumping six-foot fence like nobody's business. Oh, they can just lean on it and walk right over it. I will say this on one of the funny things. It's just a short side note. (laughs) When, When I was on my bison hunt, the only time ever I've ever heard this out of a guide's mouth is uh, we're looking at the bison. And he's like, yeah, that's a pretty good bull there, uh, but we can't hunt that. That's that's public land. I was like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, yeah, we, we can't hunt the public land. He said, we don't have a commercial use permit for the public land, so we have to wait till the bison go back on the private. And, uh, and, and I thought that was that was pretty funny, you know. Yeah. The only time ever uh, on a hunt where I couldn't hunt the public land. But uh but it, it it was it was a good time. I had a f- I had fun out there. I killed that bison with my buddy Brandon Rystead and Whitaker Brothers hunting. But the Chitna River bison, I guarantee, hands down, one of the greatest adventure hunts there is, you know. Uh been lucky to do a couple of them and be around them. Um there's only two permits available through the public draw. The draw odds are horrible. But mm-hmm. if you pull that permit, 
it's a it is a real adventure and uh and the opportunity to shoot a Boone and crockett class bison is that's a very real possibility i mean yeah. they're just some giants out well, there and now we were talking a little bit about this earlier so does rack have any play against that you know not so much on the bison i think where you really see serious conflict with rack the resident hunters of alaska uh it's almost always revolves around the sheep um they are really that is the species that seems to create the They're most hell-bent the most conflict right keeping they, dull for alaska residents that's only. right they they would really love to uh have additional limitations to non-resident opportunity for doll sheep and they would like to have um, a gross amount of limitation to guide outfitter access to doll sheep and 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 they're doing themselves i think a real disservice um, because so much of the funding for alaska department of fish and game is uh, non-resident and more importantly federal dollars i think it's it's significant it's like 70 76, 78 percent of their budget are non-resident funded or federally funded. Um, Which is funding coming out of Pittman-Robertson. That's right. So PR funds um, being allocated to state of Alaska based on, you know, the amount of ground that they have and the number of licenses that they sell. Well, if RAC starts limiting how many licenses are sold because they want to do away with non-resident opportunity to apply for limited entry permits, they're, they're subsequently going to lose federal funding, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I would assume that they'd see a major price increase on their end because right now they can get a plethora of tags for relatively no money at all. Yeah. And, and I would assume that if they lost funding federally, more funding federally, they would see price hikes on their end yeah. that they probably don't want to see. Yeah, like all those harvest tickets that are come free with a hunt license – uh, there's a cost going to be associated with that. You now, is that what Alaska calls it, is a harvest ticket? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, when you, when you think about the, the financial fiscal impact of a non-resident hunter versus a resident hunter, this, and this is, this is a sore point everywhere. Non-residents, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter which state you go to, you're going to pay more for the opportunity to hunt in that state because every state is mandated to manage their wildlife for the benefit of the residents of that state. That's, that's not in dispute, that's, that's fine. It's, it's the same way across the country. But when, when, you're, when you're looking at something like, let's say, you know, uh, black bear, okay? A resident pays zero, non-resident pays 450. Okay, zero, <laughs> you can't quantify zero <laughs> against, it's still nothing. Yeah. The contribution was nothing. Yeah. So, and, and, and I understand that they defend it as such that, uh, you know, it's their right as the residents of the state. We work here. We, we pay local taxes. We do this. We do that. Um, God, you know. I wish more states would get in line with that. <laughs> the debt, well, it'll never happen in California because you, we just don't have enough non-resident hunters who come here. There's a handful of them. Uh, Maybe. You know, just nothing compared to Alaska, which is a overwhelming number of non-resident hunters and and well how much of alaska's local economy is 100 percent based upon fishing and hunting seasons you know and and all the local commerce that it generates oh absolutely the when you think about the fiscal impact of hunting and fishing on, on alaska and 
work and commercial fishing and the tourism uh, industry in general, uh, th you, you can see why even in light of this current situation with COVID-19, they want to open sooner than anybody else because we're coming up Getting on their, slaughtered right they're now. coming up on their cash cow summer. That's when they make all their mm -hmm. money. You got to make a whole year's worth of money. And even as a guide, I get it. You got you got eight or 10 or 12 weeks to make a year's worth of money. Yeah. And so uh, I can understand why Alaska is trying to open up sooner than a lot of other states because, uh, yeah, we're, we're coming up on the busiest time of year there. Uh, people who depend entirely on non-resident money, especially uh, fishing guides and charter boats and, oh, my gosh. Well, you can relate it to California and a bunch of the east slope towns of the Sierras that have completely disappeared off the face of the map since they've implemented zones and draw tags yeah because there's nobody going to those places anymore yeah you know yeah Raven and they all you know along with plenty of other places that have just disappeared and they uh they really got hurt because they shut down that trout opener mm -hmm. so all those sierra counties they they just got killed i mean they they did it in the name of safety and I understand why they did it i was actually i was on the conference call um for for that and uh, I understand why they did it, but uh, my gosh, the, the fiscal impact of that closing down the uh, trout opener up there is disastrous. It's, it's going to hurt not only people. to mom and pop businesses, but to any business in the area. Yeah, no, it's it's t it's hard to m make a living, you know, on that kind of transient traffic. Um, you got to have those people that are dedicated that come there, you know, to either mountain climb or. Uh, you know, see the see the parks or uh, or go there to fish because without that tourism, you know, a lot of rural communities um, suffer you know, are going to suffer, you know, yeah. and are suffering, mm -hmm. you know, one hundred percent. So, and that brings me back, and and we'll we'll slide right back into California, California Wild Sheep Association. You are currently a sitting member on the board. If, mm -hmm. if I if I remember correctly, you're the current president of cow wild sheep you've been involved in cow wild sheep for a number of years um what has that been like for you it's been really fulfilling to kind of one see a couple of things happen one is um getting a sense of really where our money goes as as an organization in terms of disease research but now with our water projects um that's just we we're talking about the guzzlers that the gut rats right it's a lot of fundraising going on for i think the goal is what nine million yeah it's not no it's not quite that much oh, okay um i don't know why that number's sticking in my head right now i think we could probably do it for three mm -hmm. um but we're talking about 90 that's maybe where you get the nine we got 90, 90 guzzlers 90 trying to drinkers. go into the state Right. The goal being that we we want to double the number of desert bighorns in the state of California that are huntable populations in existing units or units that can potentially be opened. We um, we have been successful in adding some units. You know, last we're year we're up to thirty-one tags this year. We're 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 doing great compared mm -hmm. to where we were not that long ago when we had the old Dad Kelso Peak disease event. We went down to nineteen. Mm -hmm. That was a that was just a gut punch to go. I think we were at 26, and then I, we got cut all the way back to 19. And now, well, and and I'm going to interrupt. Is that I mean, you can look and and applaud the fact that last year we lost San Gregonio. However, 
tags were still up, and this year they've even increased even more. That's true. We lost San Gorgonio because of an evolving disease event occurring in the San Gorgonio Mountains. But and, and I bring that up because you mentioned the old dad disease. We we uh, we added the Newberry Rodman Ord Complex, which you got to be a part of Experience that deal firsthand. Yeah, yeah. amazing. With, with Bill, who not only killed the first ram in the unit, killed the first archery ram in the unit. Yeah. How awesome is that? Yeah, yeah, and, and completed Bill's archery slam. Yeah. What what a you know one hundred percent, I got I got to see uh, him at Grand Slam Club Ov- Ovis for that one. It was epic time. Down yeah, there. he's he's a really good dude. I enjoy him and his enthusiasm for sheep hunting, and he's been a great supporter of the chapter. And um, uh, but yeah, we we're we're still working to open additional units. We're we're in talks right now to to try to do that legislatively. We we backed up. We we were going to aggressively move to open a new unit this year, and we've actually backed off that a little bit because we're we're still trying to figure out the impact of the disease event occurring in the San Gorgonios, mm-hmm. and then there are some serious politics involved with opening uh, this other unit because it is literally right next to Los Angeles. And uh, so the politics of that here in California are um, complicated, to say the least. Yeah, I bet. But we're uh, we're continuing to to do our water projects uh, in coordination with Society for the Conservation of Bighorn Sheep in Southern California. There are uh, sister organization. And these drinkers, they're based off of rainwater. I would, if I remember correctly, they're huge catches for rainwater. Uh, more so than drilling for well water or, you know, anything like that, guzzlers. Right. This is a capture system. Basically employs uh, a large uh, rain mat that has uh, like a 50-year lifespan. And the rain mat uh, basically drains to a filter that goes to a subterranean tank. Uh, it's a new design that uh, we've been using here for the last few years. Um, and we do these catch systems, 6,500-gallon catch systems that have an integrated uh, ramp down to the water where the sheep can can walk down to the water. We have these kind of fake rocks that uh, we put over the water to limit the evaporation. Um, we're, we're, we've learned that the, the sheep are really leery about sticking their head in the dark to drink. So now when we put them in there, we kind of take the saws all, we cut out the sides of the rock a bit to, to so that the sheep can maintain situational awareness and peripheral vision while they walk down the ramp to access the water. It, it really is an ingenious design. Um, it, it's done. And they're not worried about cats with that that, that much? or No, well, you know, there's always going to be risk of predation, but that's true of any waterhole situation and why often I think animals are, uh, it's ingrained in their DNA that a lot of times when they go to drink, they know that that's a vulnerable spot. They have to go there, and predators are going to learn that, whether mm-hmm. it's on the Africa's, African savanna or whether it's the Southern California desert. Um, I will say this, that often our drinker locations are, um, they're selected based on a number of factors, one of those factors being escape terrain, so that there is um, there is adequate uh, escape terrain for the sheep within comfortable distance from the 
for the drinker so that if they've got to suddenly make a run for it and ping pong their way up a cliff face, we, we've got something there where, where they can try to elude natural predators. Mm-hmm. So but that's going to be a challenge that faces us here in California because we, we have the unique distinction of being the, the, not just the United States or Americas. We are the world's biggest mountain lion sanctuary, our whole state. You know, the state of California, we, you know, they have a special protected status. Um, you know, people back in 91, they thought they were doing something good for wildlife. They w- people want to do good for the environment. They want to do good for animals. They really didn't know what they were voting on. At all. It, it was, and there was no scientific data to there, back it. There was no reason to have this whole extra added layer of unnecessary bureaucracy. And the conservation money that was supposedly set aside that this 30 million a year in perpetuity or whatever that was set aside uh don't quote me on those numbers the money that was set aside for the conservation uh aspect of of the mountain lion protection act um it 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 was it was supposed to be earmarked for big game and deer but if historically if you go back and look and see where those conservation dollars went that's not where that money went. It, it almost always ended up in wetland restoration projects, waterfowl. The CWA guys, the Duck, Ducks Unlimited guys, they were way better about getting in there and tapping into that money, which really frustrated the hell out of, you know, the Mule Deer Foundation guys, California Deer Association. Because, hey, this was money that was supposed to be earmarked for big game projects, and yet we've got a department with no big game projects. You know, so very frustrating for the big game conservation community. Um, but again, it's mountain lions, very sore subject with California sportsmen. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a unique challenge that we, California, we and we alone face versus our neighbor, Nevada, yeah. which they can't kill over, them the, counter, over yeah. the counter tags they, all day long. You draw a deer tag. The first thing they ask you is, so Do you, you want, want a, a mountain you line tag? tag? <laughs> <laughs> so adds it to your cart automatically. And, and I'm a guy who killed a mountain lion in Nevada on a deer hunt. Yeah. You know, I killed a mountain lion at a water hole that tried to gobble my ass up. And I shot that cat at 10 yards in the eye. And when that arrow with a bow, with a bow wow. that arrow stuck him in the eye. He was kind of in the crouch position because I know he, he was trying to figure out if he was going to pounce on me in a single jump or if he was going to have to cut it in half and have a bound in there before he jumped on me. And so he was he had his in the kind of crouched attack position and the tip of his tail was whipping back and forth excitedly. I, I've got a cat. I know what that I know what that means. You know what's going on. He, I, I've seen this drill and I. When I drew my bow, he stopped and went into the crouch position. I just put my pen right under his chin and cut it loose. That arrow, it went into his eye, down his throat, and pinned his head to his shoulder. The arrow penetrated into its left lung. And that cat, it that cat just came to life and roared and started spinning and roaring and took off up the hill and piled up into Manzanita up there about 100 yards. And this is literally like right at dark. Mm -hmm. I'm like, screw you, cat. You can just lay there all night. I'll find you in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, and of course, it's archery hunt. I don't have a firearm. All I've got is like a folding pocket knife and harsh language to defend myself. (laughs) So all night I'm laying in my sleeping bag like a tamale waiting to happen for a one-eyed angry pussycat. Yeah. And, uh... But I, I went up the next morning and I got him, and, and uh, it was probably one of the most uh, hilarious things I've ever done in my life. I was, I have a, 
I have a thing about big cats. I'll I'll admit to you. I, I I've been on a couple of uh, uh, leopard hunts and uh, in Africa, and I I have a genuine respect for big cats. <laughs> They're fast, mm-hmm. and so I was not really excited about the idea of going in the brush after this lion, and uh, so when I got up the next morning and I said, well, I'll hunt for the sun comes up in case you know 200 inch mule deer comes to the water hole i don't want to be looking for a lion in the manzanita and this five point bull elk was coming down the hill to the water hole and he got right to the bush where that lion had disappeared the night before and that bull threw his head in the air and chirped and just made a run for it and i said dead or alive that cat is in that brush right there somewhere and so i figured that's it i went up there and i went above uphill of the critter, and I always tell guys whether anytime you're dealing with dangerous game, make them work for it if they're going to come for you. Make them run uphill. So, got uphill of the of the critter, and I'm trying to glass down in there, and I can't see crap. So pretty soon, I start throwing rocks down in the brush, you know, just just as a precaution. Yeah. And now and then, I figured, hey, you know, I'm all I'm all alone here. There's nobody here. So I figured cats are afraid of dogs, right? So I start barking at the top of my lungs into this brush pile, roar, 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 and throwing rocks. And now I'm at a point where I'm so frustrated with myself. I'm like, come on, you pussy. Just go in the freaking brush after this lion. So I knock an arrow, and I start sneaking in there. And, of course, you know, as soon as I start getting in the brush, I can smell the thing, and it's, 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 it's a dead smell. And so uh, <laughs> I get in there. That cat, that cat didn't last three minutes. Uh, you know, after I shot it the night before, but it, it makes for a hilarious story. And I always wondered if just somebody about how scared you were before you went in, <laughs> you know, I, I just think about somebody on top of the ridge with a spotting scope, watching somebody barking into a brush pile, <laughs> throwing rocks. I can't imagine if anybody saw me on that hunt, what they must've thought was going on. It's uh but it, it, it's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I, I was not enthused about recovering that cat without a firearm. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. So I'm going to go back to the San Gregonio being closed down. So when they closed it down, and you're going to know way better on this than I will, um, they didn't actually close it down, did they? And they limited the tags to zero, which means when it comes time to reassess the range to either bring in one or five or two tags, bringing it back to life will be a lot easier than say, if we tried to bring the chocolates back to life. Cause trying to bring the chocolates back to life is, if I understand correctly, it's almost impossible because of the legislation and everything that has to go on behind it. There's layers of bureaucracy <clears throat> because they actually fully closed the unit after, um, I want to say there's a disease outbreak. Well, here is where the department has really has really shined in that respect. Mm -hmm. And and there's there's certainly reason to be frustrated with the department and how they're managing the resource and how they allocate this. But but when you start thinking about how they're constrained by legislation, not regulation, but legislation, this is at the state level. So if you start trying to peel back the layers of that onion at the state level, suddenly you open it up to a, a state debate that's subject to a public comment period. Now now you're into a, a just 
ball of worms that's just going to, it's not going to go well for California sportsmen. So trying to operate within that constrained space, one of the wisest things they've done, like you spoke to, was that they'll list the tags as zero. They're not closing the unit. They're maintaining it as an existing management unit, but they're declaring zero tags. Now, they've done that in a couple cases. They did it in the San Gregonios, and they did it in the sheep holes. They did make the mistake with the chocolates, and they, they closed it. And now it creates a whole set of new hoops that we have to jump through to get the chocolates reopened, mm-hmm. most importantly being the survey work. So, And now would you say, I mean, is the chocolates almost to a place where it could be reopened if it really was researched and, and done appropriately? There, there are – there's – I like to think that there are, there's other low-hanging fruit out there. Prior to that, that happening. Yeah. We would almost have a better chance starting off Jump Street and opening an entirely new unit where we have a far more viable population of desert bighorns mm-hmm. than to try to go back and reopen the chocolates. The chocolates, let's put it this way. If, if we were to, to really commit to open the chocolates tomorrow, that would be probably about a four-year process. Assuming that we could get the department to allocate the funds to do the necessary survey work to back up the allocation of permits, and then we would put it out there, the proposal to reopen the chocolates was subject to a comment period, and then there'd be a secondary comment period, and these comment periods almost always, these meetings are often held um, in the worst possible places for <laughs> hunters, Los Angeles, San Francisco. It's, it, why don't you go to a, a rural office, you know, go to, go to uh, my gosh, go to Fresno or Monterey, go, go somewhere. Well, not know? only that, but anytime they're talking about anything hunting related, the amount of hunters, and I'm going to throw this at our feet because we're the ones fucking this up, not the state. The amount of hunters that show up is non-existent. The amount of anti-hunters that show up is through the roof. Yeah. You know, and I'll go as far as making the comparison to the fishing community. Anytime there's stuff being decided or or, or um, fishing problems that they're going to be working through, fishermen show up in droves. F- the, the angler community is amazing at showing up yeah when it comes to commission meetings and and things that need to be spoke to and the hunting community is is and i'm guilty of it as well and i'll say it all the all all day long you know what i mean and i've spoke with the commission plenty of times um we as hunters we don't show up well and i'll i'll often tell people this especially people who are not from california that i'll tell them look our biggest challenge often in California, especially where the politics of wildlife are concerned, is um, hunter apathy. That a lot of hunters are just defeated. They've given up. They're just like, you know. Given up 15 years ago. Yeah. They've just quit on the process. And that's the problem. If if, If you're not at the table and you're not being an advocate and you're not a part of the process, one, you can't bitch about it when it doesn't go the way you want it to. Uh, but two, inevitably, you can't be successful when you have such a large portion of your community that has been defeated by the politics and, and the, the legislation and the political labyrinth that is California wildlife politics, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so that is one of those things that 
as the president of a state chapter of a wildlife organization is trying to keep people involved you know talk about it communicate spread the word and more most importantly show up you know just show up Mm -hmm. and and be involved be counted be included um say your piece um i was really impressed to your point uh recently when talking about the trout closure uh the number of people that tried to attend the meeting that tried to call into the the conference line that tried to attend via the Didn't zoom it crash or oh like they crashed all it. kinds of crazy oh, shit it, happened it, when we were doing that. it went south so fast <laughs> i don't it didn't last like one minute they were like oh we we didn't think this through this is not working this out didn't at all. go the way we expected this is way it to. too many people and nobody knows how zoom works yeah you know yeah. and nobody mutes their phone and there's just chaos going on and and it's true. It's, as technology advances, there are ways and opportunities for people to be involved with this legislation, with the political process, and with wildlife conservation. But you got to you got to try. You got to make an effort. And that's why I consistently yeah. complain. Our biggest enemy in California is apathy. It's people who have just given up, and they they're walking away. Mm-hmm. And to you know, to Governor Brown's point, I I disagree pretty much with Governor Brown a hundred percent, but. He supported the R3 campaign, which was the, the uh, recruit, retain, reactivate uh, initiative to mm-hmm. get California sportsmen reinvigorated, reinvolved, because he recognized the value of sportsmen dollars that, that you know. That he can't touch. That he can't touch. Because but, he wanted to touch it, but I'm it sure, pro- but it, he couldn't do it. It props up a whole agency. Yeah. I mean, a big Props part- up an entire branch of the California government. Absolutely. And, and so the, the R3 initiative. You know, and if, if, if people aren't aware about it, I mean, you, you can Google it, R3. Um, but it, it, it's, it's important that even if you don't hunt or you don't plan to hunt, buy your hunting license. You know, be yeah. involved. You yeah, know. I mean, and, and, and I'll throw this on the table. I think episode 104 was with Jennifer from the R3 movement. There you go. Uh, you know, and, and we went over extensively what was going on with R3. And, and this is a maybe roughly a year ago so i'm sure quite a number of things have changed but you know it's i think the r3 movement is absolutely important and necessary especially for california um we just have such tremendous opportunity here we have a gross amount of public land people truly um underestimate california as a state and what what the opportunity is i mean you might have to drive for a while let's be honest it's public land hunting but there's a lot of really good opportunity out there uh to hunt in california Mm -hmm. um you got to do your homework there's going to be some competition um but i'm telling you it's it it's worth it it's worth the effort it's california it's fun hunting yeah Absolutely. I mean, I think what you're going to see in California, now that they took the dogs away from us, mm-hmm. you're going to have, uh, we're going to have more bears than deer. Oh, we already do. You know, here within, I mean, short amount of time. And people underestimate California bear hunting. We have seriously big bears in California. Toads. Yeah, giants. Like unbelievable you giant know. bears. I, I, I think that would be the most surprising thing. I think for, for people that really basically don't understand California and they just, they basically think Hollywood, LA, San Diego, San Francisco, maybe some of the big Central Valley towns, Sactown, Sacramento. Uh, There is just a tremendous amount of ground here. California is a giant state. Mm -hmm. And 
you think about how drastically our state changes from the 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 rainforest of the redwood curtain up there in Humboldt and Del Norte counties, uh, you know, all the way down to the desert bighorns and down in the, the down in the Mojave. You know, the, people don't realize how many different species of big game we have in California. We got a couple of kinds of deer. All to, only state you can get your elk slam in. Yep, you get all three elk in California. No matter what, you got to stop here. Yeah, that's right. Come on down. If you're looking for that 29 or an elk slam, you're going to California. Yep, got to have that tule. And uh, and I I just love tule elk, love guiding for tule elk. I have a real passion for tule elk. It's a real special thing that is 100% beautiful California animal too. Beautiful animal. Yeah. yeah, their horn structure is amazing. Yeah, antler structure. Yeah, they just you know big inside width, wavy main beams, extra points, crown points, palmation. Uh, de- I mean, they just have such a tendency to put on extra stuff and <laughs> blade out, you yeah. know, and palmate up top. Uh, I seen a post here, weekendbowhunter.com, Zach Walton put up something about, he's got a picture of a bull that he thought was a new number one Thule elk and, and, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a giant. Um, but you know, I can remember a time. Zach's a great guy. He, he's a lot Shameless of fun. plug for Zach. Yeah. He's a good ambassador for Pope and Young and bow hunting and, and now for the wild sheep community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can remember a time. I've been very blessed. I, I've drawn Tule elk twice in California. The first year was the year I lost my dad. And when I went on that hunt, I was not prepared to hunt the 10 days alone. And I just, because I had not grieved for the loss of my dad, and I had a total just mental breakdown on that hunt. And, um, and I ended up burning that tule elk tag i hunted i think i hunted six days and then just had a total mental breakdown and i thought that's it yeah I'll never never ever draw this permit again two years later i drew the same tag same unit i drew the laponza number two and uh and at that point i said <laughs> i'm going to do whatever it takes to kill a tule elk uh i did end up paying a three thousand dollar trespass fee to get on private but i killed a tule elk you know i killed a tule elk and now here With i am uh, no. With a rifle? That was with a rifle, yeah. That big, wide-open country, uh, just prairie. The tule elk is a prairie elk, so they really like that big, wide-open, uh, especially down in those units. The Laponza can be a very difficult hunt. Um, yeah, I think I shot it like 330 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, now, years later, I guide for tule elk in Monterey, and uh, and I'm able to help guys predominantly guys working on their 29 to yeah. get a tule elk and we've killed some magnificent bulls over the years you know nothing giant but we're consistent we're you know 275 to 300 we're always killing right around that boone and crockett minimum which is 285 a lot of people there's a reason they call them a dwarf elk i mean they're just they're they're occasionally you'll see they lack inches <coughs> they lack inches <laughs> tine length man it's hard to get tine length on a tule elk but yeah. you know occasionally there'll be that outlier oh that <coughs> giant bull they killed down in southern california i think mossback guys killed it i saw it at salt lake it was like yeah. three eight three seventy seven or it was ridiculous yeah, as a monster you know <coughs> excuse me but you know for the most part, you know, you're talking about high two, high two hundreds, low three hundreds, uh, but a lot of character. And I always tell people, like when they come on the hunt with me down there in Monterey, that 
we're going to look at a lot of elk. You can shoot any bull that you want. Um, it's your hunt. But I want to send you home with a bull that looks like a tule elk. Mm -hmm. I want somebody to be able to walk in your house. And be like, that's a tule elk. Nice tule elk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, you know. And pe people say, well, what does that mean? And then, and then I have to go back to, you know, uh, wide inside spread, wavy main beams, crown points. Um, usually they're bleached out, so they're super bright, blonde. Um, they're not a dark elk, you know, because mm -hmm. they bed in the wide open. And a lot of times it's hard to get a good cape on a tule elk because, like, especially in the La Panza or down there where uh, Nolan's place, Twistleman Outfitters, those bulls will bed in the wide open, and it's like 110. The sun will burn the hair on the tule elk, so the tips of their hair all curls up because it burns. It's singed. And it, and it is really hard to take care of that cape. You have to be, you really have to baby them once. You can't drag them or anything. You got to be real careful. On the spot. If Yeah, you got to be real careful and be mindful of taking care of that trophy because, you know, the, the tule elk is a, it's a ridiculously rare opportunity, maybe more rare than any sheep hunt because, and one of the, and probably the greatest conservation story, not just in America, but in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean. One of them for sure. Yeah. The numbers are, people can argue about the numbers, whether it's nine or 12 or 20. Let's just say there wasn't very many. There wasn't many. Yeah. That button will over. They were almost gone. Yeah. I, I think when I went to the orientation for the La Panza hunt, I think they I think they said 12. So from a dozen animals now, yeah. we can kill, what, 180 a year between PLM, share, and the public draw? Yeah. That's somewhere right in there. Yeah. Share, I think, gives out like 40 tags or something now. I think 44 that, tags. Yeah, and I think that the state is going to continue to develop the share, the share program. program. Yeah. I think it's going to get a lot larger than it is now. Yeah. I think you know? I think so. Yeah. So. And then uh, it's funny because you're the second person in my life I've ever met that's killed or that's got had the opportunity to hunt draw tag tule elk twice in their life. My grandma drew Grizzly Island twice. Wow. Um, pretty insane. You know, that's not that's a rare opportunity for. Well, once is rare. Yeah. Once is rare or it's twenty five thousand. <laughs> the the year I drew La Panza for the first time, my college roommate, it was the year I graduated, uh -huh. my college roommate drew Grizzly Island. Really? I did not get a bull. He killed uh, he killed a nice seven-point uh, Grizzly Island. I think it was Grizzly Island number two. Um, but, yeah, what, what, a, what a great opportunity. What a great uh, conservation story. I think it's proof positive, one, that the North American conservation model works, but two, more importantly – <clears throat> a a a well-managed hunting program is the byproduct of good conservation mm -hmm. because we have developed an environment where suddenly we have this sustainable yield we can we can take a few of these critters yeah okay and and deer and elk there's enough of them that they can fund themselves that's not necessarily the ca case with wild sheep you know wild sheep there's just not enough of them there's not enough permits there's not enough public involvement. Um, they need help. They need our help to. How can people get involved with California Wild Sheep? The the easiest way is to just go to cawsf.org and become a member, and that's the easiest way, right off Jump Street. Uh, we have our annual event every year in Sacramento. 
uh, this year due to COVID-19. It's been uh, postponed to June 27th. And there is some question as to whether or not we'll still have it because of the venue, the number of people. the It's still up in the air. It's still up in the air. Okay? Fucking California. So, you know, but we throw probably – I've had – non-residents who come to California just to go to the California sheep dinner, I've had non-residents tell me that it's their favorite sheep dinner. And there's Even quite a few people that come from out of state. I mean, in the last three <coughs> three yeah. years of me going, it's... We've really worked hard to cultivate a relationship with other chapters, mm -hmm. and um, we've had a lot of our directors, um, guys that are kind of in our like little core group that we also travel um, and it helps that we have a few members on the board that are non-residents that also they do a certain amount of outreach in their home state. Um, but, you know, you'll have uh, a lot of us that will go to other events in Washington, in Idaho, to the Oregon dinner, uh, to Nevada dinners. And we can be an ambassador for the California event. You go there. You show your face. You shake hands. You support wild sheep in other states. And in doing so you can generally get a handful of people to reciprocate yeah. and come to California, be involved, see what we're doing, have fun at our wildlife party, because that's what it is. It's a wildlife party. Yeah. And wild um, sheep shows is enormous. A sheep show party. is a giant sheep party. That's <laughs> the best show. Yeah. Sheep show is the best show. Hands down. And I, I tell people that all the time. I mean, I, I would 100% all day that uh, the Reno sheep show, um, to any other, uh, aside from maybe Dallas Safari Club, um, is the hands-down best wildlife conservation event in the United States. Absolutely. No, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that 100%. And I, I have uh, I've been very blessed to be able to, to travel and do a bunch of shows, uh, either representing Wild Sheep Foundation or representing Ultima Thule Outfitters. Uh, but man, sheep show, I, and I think the one of the greatest things about it and why the growth has been so uh, explosive is there's an in inclusivity that did not exist before, and mostly in the form of the less than one club party, mm -hmm. where the there was the over sixteen hundred people this year, wasn't it, it? It was a madhouse. It was it was awesome, and you got a community of established, successful sheep hunters who've decided we're not going to survive as a, as a culture or as a belief system. We can't help this resource that we love so much unless we really get people excited about sheep. Yeah. And the opportunities to hunt sheep here in North America are so rare and so limited. Um, it's tough, you know, to kind of cultivate that uh, younger group of enthusiastic sheep enthusiasts, sheep conservationists, Knowing full well that they they may never get a chance for, you know, it could be four, five, ten years. They may have to save money for five or ten years to go on their first sheep hunt. But that less than one club, you know, just being open to new people and say, hey, come to Sheep Show. Be involved. We're going to give away three sheep hunts. We're going to give away three international hunts. We're going to provide some opportunity to people that have never um, hunted sheep before. And... Um, and going forward, Ultima Thule Outfitters, we are going to, we've entered into an agreement with Wild Sheep Foundation. Ultima Thule Outfitters will be supporting Less Than One Club going forward. Mm -hmm. So there will be an opportunity for some young person who has never killed a sheep 
to win arguably one of the best doll sheep hunts in the world uh, if they are in the room at that party uh, at, at Sheep Show. And, and that's what, starting next year? Starting next year. Yeah. So long as COVID doesn't continue to shut us <laughs> down. Right. As long as we're not into second or God, third round of COVID. you fucking imagine if it's still going on? <sighs> it's blowing up in Brazil. They're so afraid it's going to come back in the fall that the, that the virus is just going to go to the southern hemisphere and it's going to come back in the fall. I hope that's not the case. You know, SARS didn't last this long. MERS didn't last this long. Swine flu. You know, we've been down this road before, mm-hmm. but this is the most drastic effort that we as a nation or even as a world planet, yeah. planet that Let's talk about being dropped to our knees, trying to mitigate the impacts of this one singular virus. Um, so, yeah, a lot of lot of people I get emails regularly from hunters concerned about. How's this is going to impact my hunt? Borders I, shutting down. I've got a hunt in a foreign country that may get canceled. <laughs> and then they're looking at me for maybe a, a, a fallback strategy. Like, if you have a cancellation and my foreign hunt gets canceled, I will come and hunt with you if you're still open. It, it, there's just a, a lot of concern about how this is going to impact our hunts this fall. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that at least for Alaska and Canada, you, we're going to be in a happier place going into the fall and that all the sheep hunters out there that are booked and ready to go right now are going to have an opportunity to, to do those hunts and get into the field and, yeah. you know, and, and hopefully be successful. A lot of outfitters I've spoke with have just kind of been like, we've just been going through and slowly telling clients, hey, next year, everybody got bumped back a year. Yeah. You know, it's kind of been a collective thing I've been hearing from well, all the Alaska brown bear hunters. It's yeah. all the Alaska spring uh, season was If you were 21, you're, now you're 22. And if you were 20, you're 21. And, yeah. you know, so on and so forth, which is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. We're not quite at that point yet for Alaska. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just have to be, we just have to be mindful. And at the end of the day, what whatever the situation is, um, we're just going to do everything in our power to take care of our people and and stand by our hunters and you know cuz we can't do what we can't do what we do and do this thing that we love so much without our hunters you know and that's why anytime i get to speak publicly whether you know it's at a wild sheep event or another event or or uh if i'm invited to speak somewhere i i always really try to make a point to thank the hunters because uh you know, we're we're a whole industry that just thrives and exists only because of people's passion for big game hunting, mm-hmm. and 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 because of that, you know, I always try to thank them, and I always try to encourage them to, you know, get involved, you know, get involved with a conservation organization. Doesn't necessarily have to be Wild Sheep Foundation, but I think Wild Sheep Foundation is one of the best in the way that we spend the money, mm-hmm. the way that the money is generated on a per member basis. I mean, we're we are one of the most effective NGOs going right now for wildlife, period, hands down, no argument. Um, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about being involved with Wild Sheep Foundation, mm-hmm. you know, not just at the state level, but, you know, anything I can do for the uh, Wild Sheep National, which it's, it's not really national, it's international. Um, and, uh, it's been in other podcasts been referred to as the mothership. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you heard that one. Uh-huh. I think Gray Thornton referred to it once as the mothership. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, you, you've, 
You've just got to be passionate about it because they, they're so much better at what they do than some other organizations. Because I used to be a big supporter of some other organizations that I think just got so big, it's like all their money was going into admin and costs. And I just felt like we, PR. we weren't doing much for wildlife. Sounds. Yeah. We just weren't doing much for wildlife anymore, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, Wild Sheep Foundation has been uh, wildly effective. Um, and but Up we, to this point, up for to the, sure. I mean, it's yeah. the, the evidence is there that Wild Sheep Foundation has absolutely been successful in preserving and, and, and helping rebuild the wild sheep population yeah. across North America. And we can still do better. And I mean, the, the there's always room for growth. There's in always room for growth and improvement. And when you look at, uh, you know, the Kuyu's uh, conservation direct initiative, absolutely, that fucking amazing. That event. that is just hands down. That's just a, that's just some guys putting their heads together and saying we're going to do this. You thing. You want to talk about crushing conservation? Um, you know, I was involved with that. I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, crushing conservation, and that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life not only you know in the aspect of physically touching a live sheep um but being involved in and understanding what was going on and that it was company and customer funded and it was 100 percent driven by the passion of sheep hunters to put the entire event together Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and and all cost you know and making sure that this is for the sheep you know and this is this is how we want to do this this is 100 percent what's going to happen um you know there was uh when we got to antelope island there was a lot of people that were oh yeah 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 you know everything's great and and people kind of jumped the gun on on telling people to show up and celebrate the event and Meanwhile, the, you know, the 20 of us that were there that were at the at the Rocky Boy Res, we're on pins and needles looking at the trailer full of sheep, praying that those blood test results come back disease free and praying that there is no problem with these sheep, you know, and, and on top of that, you know, the the ewes being pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, and and knowing that come May already, you know, because we're in May now. Um, that that sheep population was going to gain 10, 15 more sheep once the ewes dropped. Yeah. You know, and, and well, the lambs dropped, but the ewes dropped the lambs. Um, but again, I mean, it, it was just a remarkable experience all the way around. No, um, I can I can only imagine. That's, you know. It's awesome. It's a great achievement. Uh, it was well documented, well executed. Uh, it just looked like it went super smooth. I know there were some hiccups and some bumps and probably some uh, tentative moments. You know, to speaking to your point about worrying about disease status once you've already got the sheep in transit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what it's it just great achievement for Kuyu, great achievement for conservation. Well, great achievement for wild sheep. Oh, absolutely. And and, and the people that are going to benefit from hunting those three new herds of sheep. 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Yeah. Right? Because that's really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's what organization, what company, who's doing what. At the end of the day, you know, six years from now, when they do an Antelope Island auction tag for Rocky Mountain Bighorn, and, 
you know that's that's because of of the rock uh the rocky boy indian reservation you know yeah donate not donating but selling the sheep to reestablish that herd yeah you know and what will those funds that get generated you know be able to accomplish for future for future sheep you know and future sheep hunters and carrying the legacy and continuing along on the tradition for all of us right oh absolutely right it's pretty uh yeah, man, it was just, I, I don't know, like, I, I still haven't fully wrapped my head around being there, Yeah, you know, completely and, and um, what I got to be a part of and be involved in. Amazing experience. No, it must have been special. I just, you know, I would have killed to be on that list, but, you know, if Brendan had just thrown it out there to the community, the, the feedback would have been so overwhelming. It just, it would have been too much of a headache to, right. <laughs> to try to sort through. You know, the well, then all of a sudden, two thousand guys that want to be involved. Yeah, you know. that want to show up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a pretty remarkable event, man, and and I'm forever changed. You know, you know, Brendan allowing me and inviting me to to be able to be up there was, was huge. You know, and the support of Jake and Jeff um, for me was huge, and and. Uh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Well, and I think that also speaks to the the magical quality of wild sheep. You know, y- you can you can deer hunt your whole life and never join the Deer Foundation. You you know, you can hunt elk your whole life and maybe never join that uh elk elk foundation. But you know, you hunt sheep one time. You're joining you're in you're you're hooked you're joining wild sheep foundation you're you're into the conservation you understand how precious the opportunity is and suddenly um there's a lot more to it than just hunting it's that just the magical quality of wild sheep it's that species it's that magical quality of sheep that instantly turns hunters into conservationists Mm -hmm. it's it's there's there's nothing else quite like it i get it i get it (laughs) you know i remember uh, I did an interview with a guy last winter and we were talking about sheep and, uh, a very well-established sheep hunter that I know, um, reached out to me afterwards, you know, and, and he was like, you nailed it, man. He's like, and, and for me, it was extremely humbling moment. You know, he's just like, you nailed it. He's like your passion and your love. And the reason why you want to hunt sheep is why everybody should want to hunt sheep he was like you are you're so there you don't even know it and it was a humbling experience for me because i look at the adventures this guy's going on and the hunts he's getting mm-hmm. to do and all this stuff and i for me it's just a twinkle in my eye you know yeah i hadn't even been on a on a sheep hunt at that point and uh you know it was just it's remarkable sheep sheep is is absolutely uh do you have a cowboy boot collection do you have a boot collection uh i don't okay so i've got a boot collection i have i'm a big lucchese guy right okay all right um and my buddy who introduced me to lucchese boots was like it's a disease he told me straight up he was like lucchese boots are a disease he's like once you start getting into nice boots you're gonna know what i mean and i got i got the the Lucchese boot disease, big time. I bought a bunch of pairs or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Um, fast forward, 
sheep hunting is a disease and and not in a bad way at all and 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 it is consuming me it consumes my thoughts every single day of my life constantly and i used to obsess over mule deer and mule deer hunting and i still love mule deer hunting and i'm gonna mule deer hunt every year for the rest of my life um you know, I just, I love it way too much. I got my three, four, five mule deer hunts that I love to go on every year. That's never going to change. Um, but I obsess over sheep. I obsess over, over the whole, you know, having from, from seeing British Columbia in a late season, you know, first of October to the 15th hunt to, you know, hunting the white mountains from, you know, August to, to September, um, into the Clark Kingston's. It's just unreal, absolutely unreal. Yeah, you know, it 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 truly is. It's in, you know. Sometimes uh, people ask me, like, you know, what's what's the best hunt you've ever been on? And inevitably, the the more I dwell on that question, uh. It, and I reflect on the the sum of my experiences. It, it's always, it's not my hunt. It's always somebody else's hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this in 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 the core of my sheep guiding experience. I have this handful of really standout doll sheep experiences for one reason or another. And then have the I've had the pleasure to be on a couple of California bighorn hunts both of which were epic one of which was one single-handedly one of the best hunts of my life in terms of the the level of adventure the quality of the companionship the number of animals the quality of game you know oregon oregon is a real gem for for california bighorns Mm -hmm. people often get confused and they'll just sort it out really quick California bighorns do not live in California, that, and they are not desert sheep. <laughs> That's true. The, the The biggest irony is there are no California bighorns in California. Now, that that's not entirely true. We get some strays. Okay, from Oregon. From Oregon. And, and maybe northern and Nevada. And from northwest Nevada. Yeah. We do in, south, in southwest Idaho. We do have some Callies that stray into the state that are transient to California. We do have a guy up there that actually wants to transplant Callies back into California. We'd love to help with that. Uh, and we're, we're kind of feeling that out. And we're, we're kind of in a feasibility stage of, is that really a thing? Can we really make that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it does seem a little ridiculous that there's more California bighorns in British Columbia than there are in <laughs> California. California <laughs> and a lot of times people wrongfully refer to the Sierra Nevada bighorns as California bighorns. Mm-hmm. And that's well, and the Sierra Nevada bighorn is another amazing accomplishment for conservation. Absolutely. And I would almost even want to say that it's got to be getting close to maybe being a tag or two tags issued for that. I mean, that has to be... We we are getting close to delisting. Delisting. We're not. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Of. It's like we'll, 750, I think. Yeah. Delists, we so. need we need uh, we need a, a certain number of animals in a certain number of their original home ranges, and we need them to be stable for a certain amount of time. And then mm-hmm. we go through a monitoring period, and then they're going to be eligible for delisting. But when I started at Humboldt, there was less than a hundred 
people were thinking Sierra Bighorns. Sierra Bighorns. Yeah. We're talking about Sierra Nevada Bighorns. They there were these drastic plans like we we got to do something ridiculous to save the Sierra Nevada Bighorns. They wanted to capture them and put them on Mono Island or something. I, yeah. There was all kinds of wackiness about what they were going to do. Um, but I I've got to say that you know we had a catastrophic loss of Sierra Nevada Bighorns um, here a couple of years ago when we had 200 percent of snowfall. And they had translocated a bunch of those sheep west of the Pacific Coast Trail, and they all died. We lost like 116 of mm-hmm. them. It was a, it was horrible. It's a big mistake. Oh, it just set us back. Well, nobody could predict we were going to have a 200% snowfall year. Right. Uh, since drought is the new normal for California, um, yeah, what a what a horrible loss of of sheep. Set us back probably 10 years on delisting the sheep. You know? Wow. So, but. They surprisingly, they have bounced back pretty good. The numbers are good. We could very well see them delisted in our lifetime, and we could very well see a tag in our lifetime. Now, of course, we're fairly young, so right. you know, in the next, let's say, twenty years, you could see them delisted, and you could see a permit. Yeah. So, but uh, but to 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 my previous point, all of the best sheep hunts that I've been on have been other people's sheep hunts, you know, just sharing that experience yeah. with them, either as a guide or an observer or as a, I don't know, a counselor, I suppose. Um, I do have the luxury of getting invited on some pretty awesome hunts to to just give my opinion, be a traveling companion, tell jokes, and, um, you know, been on a couple of Marco Polo hunts, and that really, that is truly one of the most awesome experiences you can have. That That is the that is the Super Bowl, man. That is the that is the top, the most miserable, the coldest I've ever been. Um, just it, it is an epic experience, you know, Tajikistan Marco Polo. You I know, couldn't even imagine, it, man. It is it is a huge adventure. Just getting there, the travel alone, getting there is a huge adventure. The well, Jeep ride. Yeah, I was going to say, not only is it just like a monstrous flight and time in the sky, but the car ride is. What, 15, 20 hours long? Yeah, it used to be 16 or 17. Uh, now you can do it. Um, they paved a huge section. They paved a huge section where the, the highway drops down to the Afghanistan border for the first time, uh, which is actually a really popular area, I think, to hunt um, Markor. Um, I actually saw a Markor, for only Markor I've ever seen in my whole life, the first time when we dropped into the canyon. Here's a, here's a female Markor just walks right across the road in front of us. I was, I wasn't even sure what I was looking at. Yeah, you know, uh, I'd never seen one. And uh, but yeah, now you can do it in you can do it in thirteen. If you got a good driver, you can do Dushanbe to Karog in thirteen hours. Oh wow! So and infrastructure and that country is continuing to do a incredible amount of infrastructure. I never saw so much heavy equipment. The, the, when we did the road trip this last year from Dushanbe to Karog. All kinds of heavy equipment, working on roads. Just now, was that with Sean? That was with Sean Wood. Yeah, yeah. yeah great hunt, great experience. Um, killed a couple great animals. Real, real good time. Um, that that's just a that should be on people's bucket list. That should be something everyone aspires to. Mm-hmm. And and it's possible. Trust me. I'm a guy that thought I would never go. I've been twice. Yeah. Okay. So for young people or people who are you know, regular guys like me, working class guys, 
never underestimate what you're capable of. Never underestimate where your opportunities are going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, just be good to people, work hard. Uh, kindness, man. Ki- it goes so far, man. Kindness. Yeah, just be 100% a, kindness. Be a good person. Maintain those relationships. Don't um, shit on people. Yeah, and don't be be willing to put yourself out there. You know, for somebody. You mm-hmm. know, it's not that big a deal to do somebody a solid once yeah. in a while, even 100%. if it's somebody you don't know. Cause yeah. You, you know, you meet somebody. You get random guys. You know, this is what I love about Canadians. It's a wild sheep show. You go to a wild sheep show. You stand in line to get a beer. And be Canadian in line in front of you, and he just turned to you and like, you know, hey, what are you drinking? You know, it's just random guys, you know, and it just it's just a random act of kindness, doing another sheep hunter a solid, and pretty soon you're hanging out in the uh, terrace lounge, chatting a guy up, and he's like, yeah, 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 I, I got you for stone sheep. You, uh, what do you want to do? You, you want to try to work something out? You know, we can do a trade or something. Yeah. Suddenly, now you're having a real conversation with a guy. That has some leverage where, you know, you, you could work some kind of horse trade and opportunity arises. You suddenly got a chance. Yeah. So I, I just tell the guys, don't don't, don't get, quit before d- the don't miracle quit. Happens. Don't give up, man. Don't give up and don't don't get wrapped up in the in the dollar signs, man. Just understand what you want to do. Make it a priority. And that this is the hard part. Make it a priority. Make good choices in life. You know, try to make good choices. And, uh, you know, and if you're a real young person, I would say just really focus on your education because I have pretty much got to do everything I have ever wanted to do because of my education, my education. And I would say my work ethic. And I thank my dad for growing up on a farm and teaching me the value of just kicking ass and working hard and starting a project and following through. If you've got education and work ethic, the money is not an issue, okay? Because mm-hmm. you, you can generate opportunity, and there's ways to do it. You can find a way to think outside the box. But if you focus on education and you have a good work ethic, you can do whatever you want in life. You really can. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think, you know, and that's the wonder. And we keep coming back to this thing about sheep hunting. That's the thing you discover. You are capable of more than you think. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your dreams. Amy Martin said that. She's one of the most poignant moments of her Marco Polo sheep hunt. I'm rolling camera. She's, she's standing there. She's sitting there behind the ram. And, and she, just, she just has this beautiful organic moment about, you know, I've, I've been all over the world. I've been to the Olympics. Never give up on your dreams, you know. Mm-hmm. And there can be nothing truer about sheep hunting than that. Is it just... If that's the dream, to just don't give up and just be willing to be dedicated, work hard, make good choices, and, yeah. you know. 100%. It, it's it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I keep saying that. I'm super positive, yeah. you know. I got so many points in so many states. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, one of these years, it's going to happen. Yeah. M- I mean, my big dream this year was to get onto a doll sheep hunt, but thanks, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> just have to put that one off to 21, right? Right. But uh, so there's always a part in podcast. Right. And it's it's called the Dead Eye Minute. Dead Eye Outfitters. Okay. They make hats, T-shirts, socks, hoodies, all your daily lifestyle apparel. Um, wonderful guys. Brian, Nikolai, the whole crew, um, the, the dub family. And uh, they sponsor part of the podcast. 
and it's sometimes a serious question, sometimes a jackassy question, you know. And uh, I think I'm going to go back to part of something we were talking about earlier in the conversation, and it was about relationships and building relationships and and uh, having our, our wife or girlfriend or, or you know, whoever. Um, so for you in building your outdoor lifestyle and building to where you've gotten to today. Um, what has that been like? You know, when you were talking about, you know, the person has to support you 100%. You guys have to be on the same page. How important has that bond been for you in building um, in order for you to get to where you are today? Well, because of my wife's understanding and respect for what I do, and because... You know, early on, she had an opportunity to go to Alaska, and she worked in the bush camp for five weeks. And during that time, I was mostly not in the camp. I was like in a spike camp somewhere 30, 40 miles away on a mountaintop. So suddenly a lot of light bulbs went on for her in terms of understanding why doesn't he write more. Well, I'm not in the camp necessarily mm -hmm. airplane only comes once a week for mail so th there was a tremendous kind of learning curve there where she really began to understand it but i introduced her to a lot of things you know like like fishing and bow fishing and and now hunting and 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 so she's she's experienced all of that and um and she has a real appreciation for the animal and the meat and eating organic and and without that relationship, without somebody who's willing to, you know, and, and there was some give and take, you know, when we got married, I, part of the agreement was I wasn't going to go back to LA. And she said, I don't want you to be gone six months a year. So I walked away from fish guiding in Alaska and now I, I just do the hunting. So I do, uh, essentially I do 10 weeks. So I scaled my season back so that we could compromise. Mm -hmm. And and that's been very successful. And and it it's so important, you know, to have someone that is supportive of of your lifestyle. But for young people that are in you know, evolving relationships, you really <laughs> if you're dating somebody who doesn't come from that culture and that belief system, it's on you yeah. to introduce them to it, understand the value of it, appreciate it, respect it, and and then and then the love is the love is going to come naturally. Okay, but but that that understanding, appreciation, and respect that is a tremendous foundation for love, and so it makes the relationship work. Mm -hmm. And I'm I am so blessed. My wife is probably the only woman who may have ever argued to have an animal life-size mounted instead of a shoulder mount. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. For the cost of a life-size mount, we could go back there and shoot another one. I yeah. mean, come on now. And, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. Um, there's still uh, conflict, and there's still... Well, every relationship every, has every, everything. Every stick's going to, yeah. yeah. And, and those long times apart, you know, that that's tough and my schedule is you know sometimes it's a little frustrating but uh the byproduct of that is i still have that big 
I have this big block between show season and when I leave for Alaska, where essentially, you know, it's on me to stay home and, you know, do the honeydew project. You mm -hmm. saw the new flagstone? Yeah. Yeah, I just finished that last week. That was the honey. I parked on that. Yeah. Hopefully that was okay. <laughs> it's all right. All right. Yeah, as long as the stones don't break. It's yeah. fine. We'll find out how strong they are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. No, it, it, the thing is, uh, uh, you you've you got to put your so you got to hold up your end of the relationship. Right. You know, you do your job, uh, try to try to be a good partner, um, and then uh, and look. Sometimes there's just going to be some of those things that you know your your wife's cousin is going to get married on opening day of deer season, and you know you're either going to have a huge argument or you're you know gonna have a huge argument uh yeah <laughs> oh, i so, can relate to that exactly so because I, I i've had friends who got married on opening day of deer season i'm like you do know now your anniversary every year every is year fucked. is gonna be right in there around yep. opener yep. so but uh yeah no it's it's relationships are such work but it, you really you know if you're gonna commit and you're gonna commit for life They've got to get it. They've got to understand it. They've got to respect it. And the way you do that is to introduce them to it, mm -hmm. get them involved, take to go to the shows, go to these big wildlife conservation parties, meet other people, other women who are into it. Yeah. Because um, we've got some women hunters now that are just unbelievable. And women, uh, they're the fastest growing segment of, of, of our group. Uh and, and you, you look at some of these female guides and outfitters that are working these days that have come up. You know, I mean, Stephanie Lowe won Guide of the Year last year. She crushed it. Oh, I mean, awesome. And I've, I've had opportunities to hunt with her, and she is every bit and more oh, of, just. of what that award represents. Yeah. You know, and uh, I remember, so when I got to Sheep Show and she walked up when we were seeing each other for the first time since we'd been in camp together, she walked up and I was like, I have missed you so much just because we had several hunts after that. Yeah. And she wasn't in camp. And what she brings to the table as a guide and a professional in the hunting industry is irreplaceable value. You know, so she she deserved that award. Oh, absolutely. Every, I mean, she's just such an amazing human. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, it, 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 they're just it, it, it's it's very refreshing that there are so and there's so many there are so many young ladies that are out there that are 14, 15, 16, 17, even into their 20s that are they're suddenly like, hey, this guiding and outfitting, th this is an option. Mm -hmm. I can do this. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of young ladies coming up in the industry that pretty neat. they're going to be freaking savages. Yeah. They're going to be animals. Yeah. You get them on Stephanie, the I would out hunt any guy that I know all day long. And I'll say that every single day of the week. It, and to be perfectly honest, look, women are wired for it in some senses better than men mm -hmm. um, in terms of patience and, and really being methodical and meticulous and going through the checklists and guys are just brash and aggressive and <laughs> <rah>, you know <laughs> testosterone <laughs> ass exact, motherfuckers exactly yeah. and so you know i i love guiding women hunters um they're you know they they're generally they're very calm cool collected uh you know it's it's really refreshing to see the changes that have occurred just in my lifetime in mm -hmm. our community you know it's 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 awesome 
Yeah. You know, and Glenda Grote, you know. Glenda is such an amazing person. She is. I pulled her aside. She's such a sweetheart, too. I think two years ago I pulled her aside and 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 had a talk with her and just said, you know, hey, look, I really appreciate what you're doing. And mm-hmm. you're just, you're the future and just keep it up and, you know, just you're doing a great job and i just wanted to say thank you and uh just keep being just keep being you and be that example for Mm -hmm. other young women out there because hey you know like i said it's it's an option she's a she is an extremely nice person anytime that i've gotten to sit down and talk with her um at the booth or or whatever Mm -hmm. she's just over the top yeah I send like all of our bow hunters, anybody that walks into my booth and says, so what do you think about bow hunting? I'm like, let's go over and talk to Canole Outfitters. Let me introduce <laughs> you to Glenda Grote. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> all right, enjoy that. Have, have fun with that. Yeah. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. Makes sense, though. Oh, yeah. Great area. Yeah. Phenomenal area. Yeah. 100%. Right on, man. Well, that about wraps it up. That about wraps it up. How do you feel? Oh, good, man. I appreciate you coming over and uh, yeah. having an opportunity to chat. And certainly, you're welcome anytime. You know, yeah. You know, I appreciate it. Been a good time. And good. You know, we can sit and jaw about hunting. In ev- yeah, I mean, in all perpetuity. day. I mean, yeah, yeah, constantly. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the flip flop guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.